He's like, you came to me. Like, come on. <laughs> and then it's like the answer is like, yeah, because that's because I thought I was going to die. Which is like, oh, fuck. <laughs> that's the only time you want to have sex with me? <laughs> you literally it's like got- a last two people on Earth situation. <laughs> I mean, he tries to get a dig at her, and then she, like, just roundhouse kicks him. She's like, no. back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. As a reminder, though it's in the title, we have to remind you every time, spoilers abound. This is a rewatch podcast looking at the perspective of the entire show. If you haven't finished it, you totally should because it has one of the best series finales of all time. So go ahead and get through it and check that out. Then come back and listen to us, including like interviews that we have with the cast and with Terry, writers, creators, um, they also spoil everything. So, this is Beep, and I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys. I'm so excited. I always get to be lovely on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Beep. <laughs> You're most welcome. And we are welcoming back Megan today. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Megan! Yeah, this um, is a coffee episode, not a wine episode. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm curious if the energy will be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can we, can caffeine still get us as deep into our feels? Um, I, am, I don't can think I, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I would just like to say I am really, really thankful this morning to be talking about really good television writing mm-hmm. with you guys. It yeah. has been a rough spring in genre TV. <laughs> Fucking, like, yeah. <laughs> I love that you're just limiting it to spring. <laughs> I mean, oh, the last well. year has been like, how can we ruin our show in 45 minutes? Colon, yeah, man. A challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and Three different so shows. So many people are rising to that occasion. It's oh, incredible. Knocking di- it out of the park, man. <laughs> Three different shows. So uh, we are just ex- uh, even more thankful for 12 Monkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right. I am so excited to talk about this episode. We are talking about today, episode 210, Fatherland. Um, this is, I always love this episode because I love spy intrigue so much. But now on rewatch, it's like brain breaking um, between yeah, the agent sure. Gale of it all and the Olivia of it all. Um, so I'm really excited to dig in. It was written by Oliver Grigsby. He also wrote Yesterday and he wrote After, which is another Agent Gale loop mission. So another example of a writer, uh, you know, kind of getting to continue a thread, a narrative mm-hmm. thread in a later season. How it fun was- to kind of be just like responsible for Agent Gale, though. Oh, for sure. And right. also, what a smart technique. I mean, if they did that on purpose, which maybe they did, um, what a smart technique to making sure, like, at least one level of continuity is taken care of, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for some go. people who might not know kind of a side character as well as others to make sure that he has that continuous voice. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it was directed by Guy Norman B., and I, just, I was like, why is that name familiar to me? And then I realized it's he directed both Alias and Veronica Mars episodes. Oh, okay. 
So it's like, oh my God, I would just like to say a special thank you to Guy Norman B for directing like three of my favorite television shows, <laughs> including a, a, like a season one Veronica Mars one, which I still think is like one of the perfect seasons Can we of please side squee just real quick about the fact that Veronica Mars is coming back? Mm-hmm. Side mm-hmm. squee. Wee! Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we dig into it, there were a couple big picture thematic um things that I want to talk about. So the first is the name of the episode, Fatherland. Um, And I think sort of the most obvious um, application is Fatherland referring to Germany. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously, like, Fatherland in in calling sort of a country Fatherland, Motherland arose during sort of this uh, Nazi era or heading into it – sort of nationalistic rhetoric and referring to fatherland, motherland. It's still in the, um, actually went down like a rabbit. It's still referring to fatherland. It's still in the German national anthem, but sort of like referring to motherland, fatherland. Um, so that's sort of the obvious application of the title because we're spending time in Germany, both in 2016 and 1961 in this episode. But I think it also refers to this is the origin story of our I guess we'll call her our villain, um, Olivia and her father, her creator, uh, Dr. Kirshner, who's also the father creator of all of the messengers. And there's also, I think, sort of a fun, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but at the end of the episode, we'll get into it, there's a huge, I, I think it's a clue when you have Cole staring at the word of the witness mm-hmm. with the real witness in the room and she's saying father over and over again as Cole stares at the word of the witness, which his son created, and it has that 1959 date on it. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of levels, the most obvious application, and then just kind of going down of the way they kind of played with the title of that episode. Um, did you guys have any other thoughts about that? Um. I just think it's, you know, I always feel like 12 Monkeys does such a good job or such an interesting take on parents and, you know, like legacies and stuff like that. And um, this is just one of those episodes that really hammers that home where, you know, we're talking about, you know, Olivia and her father. And um, I don't know. It's just one of those things that they do so well is they lay, they don't forget people's history in a way and it like obviously they don't forget forget people's history that's really important but just the parenting aspects are they always get me because they have so many different takes on like mothers and fathers you know and a lot of it is like lullaby is about like mother right mm-hmm. and um by the end by three one it's about cassie being literally mother or the end of season two is about cassie being literally mother so it's also interesting to me that they you know, Cole and his father is a theme, and then, like, Olivia and her father is a theme. So I just think it's interesting how those story components layer together. Yeah, right, and how much of it makes who we are yeah, for better or for worse. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, like, um, yeah, and the show doesn't forget that. Like, and that's, you know, according to this last year in TV, quite a feat to not forget where you came from as a character. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Yep. I'm not um, bitter, not one bit. No, no. This episode's not, I mean, I want to focus it. I'm like so excited to be positive mm-hmm. about oh, yeah. TV <laughs> for a change today. Um, okay, so TV the, is canceled. I'm yeah. sorry. It's just canceled. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
it's not. We'll always have 12 monkeys who still have the expanse. That's true. We That's still true. get so. <laughs> and the leftovers also is over, so it can't hurt us. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, so the other big, I kind of think of this as the, like, Etu mm-hmm. episode. So yeah. this episode is, for so many different character relationships, about betrayal. Yeah. And exploring how different it is. It's one thing to have an enemy that you don't expect has a duty to you to screw you over. It's another thing entirely, right? Like betrayal can only come from someone that you're close to, that you expect is going to look out for you, right? And you kind of let your guard down around. And so there's so many different betrayals or fracturing of relationships in this episode. And and Fatherland and going into Resurrection where we have an outright coup – it's it's happening for so many different characters. So obviously you've got the betrayal by Cassie and Ramsey of Cole. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways what makes me really – is really sad watching this episode is this is really sort of the beginning of the end um, for Cole and Ramsey. Mm-hmm. They're never really going to bounce back from this. Um, and we'll – I mean until the very end of the show. So – and we'll get into that later. You also have a betrayal um, – by Adler of Jones. You have the betrayal of Olivia and the fracturing between Olivia and the witness and the <laughs> army of the 12 monkeys. Um, <laughs> well, it is such her origin story, right? Like, right? this is the part where Olivia begins to become the witness. Right. In a real, like, you can start to track, like, okay, like, when she gets yeah. up out of that wheelchair. Right. Uh-huh. And so it begins with her – the episode begins with rolling her into that room and she says betrayal. Um right. and, and we'll get into it's also viewing the witness as this – we're exploring her real father figure and how mm-hmm. the witness was almost explain like it replaced that father figure. And I think that adds sort of the the personal for her that this is not just have being disillusioned with your faith. It also feels like a personal betrayal, right? And that's going to fuel her forward. Um, and then you Olivia also Olivia actually pulled off like the time travel thing of like being her own dad, <laughs> <laughs> right? And her own mom, right? I was say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wow. When you think about it that way, that's like mythic as shit. Yeah. I'm like, it might be too early in the morning for me to pull out like some mythology, but yeah, when you put it like she's. She created herself. It's yep. like, there has to be, like, <laughs> something there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, we've got I think the... the I think, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. about Olivia and feeling the betrayal of um, the 12 monkeys and all that kind of stuff is... It is a betrayal of, like, that kind of religious faith, right? Where um, you do feel like your god has betrayed you and that you've done everything right and you're still, like, getting fucked over and... um you know, like that crisis of faith, black, like dark moment of the soul um, kind of thing. And I think that they, she plays it really real. Like we might not totally empathize with Olivia, but like no one has ever doubted that, um, that her belief was sincere and complete and total. Right. So. Yeah. And I mean, there's a whole, like, we'll get into it at the end, but I mean, she was living in a box. Right. 
and the one father figure who was kind of, you know, like this, almost like this godlike voice, right? Mm-hmm. Like outside of your world, right. <laughs> right? I mean, even just the way that it's set up and then that's taken away. And then her mother, she meets her mother slash daughter, um, Mantis, and and it is then repl- substituted with the witness is now always going to take care of you. Yeah. So it's sort of this... I don't know. It's there's a lot to unpack, right? This idea of like God the Father and all of this, right? right? I mean, so it's really interesting. But so that's like a whole story of personal betrayal, betrayal of your faith, all of that. And then you have also a fracturing. It's not quite betrayal, but it's definitely a fracturing of the friendship alliance between Deacon and Cassie. Mm-hmm. And all of this is going to have repercussions that are then going to play out in the next episode where we have the coup. Um, what I particularly appreciate watching this stretch of episodes, and we have all watched a lot of TV lately, mm-hmm. where, or in the last year, let's say, whether, and like just to be like very specific about it, whether it's The Hundred, whether it's Game of Thrones, where you have characters that, like, good drama, there has to be conflict, right? Right. And we're invested in that conflict when it's characters that we care about. But there's a tipping point where if they screw each other over, if they, like, and it's very hard to, like, articulate, right? Like, there's a line of how far you can stretch characters screwing over other characters when it's a relationship we're supposed to be invested in. Mm-hmm. And if you don't give us really good, understandable reasons where we can see why everyone is doing what they're doing, and also make sure you keep narrative focus on the emotional cost and that everyone is feeling that cost, then you could come away from a stretch of episodes like this being like less emotionally invested because all anybody does is screw each other over. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And I think that there's a lot of reasons that writers fall into that trap. And I mean, one is to provide the big shocking, like, twist and twist again. And you're like, okay, but I didn't ask for that. (laughs) And then I think the other two is like, like, and I guess I said this back in the lullaby thing, but the 12 Monkeys writers have a lot of patience. Like they let their, um, what happens, they let their conflict sit, right? They let it happen they let it breathe like yes the show can be fast fast paced but like you're right we never lose sight of you know like when cole shows up in 1961 like he's it's almost worse right because he's at the bar and they're all like drinking together and then all of a sudden they (laughs) roofied him (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) and like he is pissed like super pissed and they let this whole episode be about that Right. And um, I don't know, like, I guess that's what makes it so believable is that you're completely right. Like in 12 Monkeys, when someone when betrayal happens, like it affects the rest of the the rest of the season. And in a lot of ways, the course of the show, like they don't forget it. Right. Or every arc or every conflict is not confined to the 45 minutes. Yes. Of the, you know, of the hour, if you will, that we're in. Or even the scene. And then right. the next after commercial break, it's different. And you're like, what the, what the fuck 
happened. Right. I mean, and also, I mean, I it's just because I've really been thinking, like, as we as I was watching this episode and then watching Resurrection and thinking about there's so I mean it's not like if you actually were to like make a list, it's not like this show doesn't have a lot of characters betraying one another or being on the opposite side right. of a conflict, right? It's right. it's happening right now in season two. We're going to have a whole other round of it in season three over Ethan, right? Mm-hmm. And splitting up the team and that. So it's not like they're not presenting a story where characters we care about are on opposite sides of sort of like mm-hmm. a, a disagreement. It's just, I'm really cognizant watching, like, even in this episode, you have constant check-ins that let us know that Cassie and Ramsey are, they're, they're doing what they believe is right, mm-hmm. but they are uncomfortable, right, and messed up, even if it's just small notes, right? right. Like, Ramsey saying to Cassie, you got to shake this off. We did this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, checking in so that even the characters that you feel like are the ones doing the betraying, mm-hmm they still care about the person that they just screwed over, you know? And so I just, I'm like, where, where is it that, where's the difference, right? And it's kind of hard to get at because it's like your emotions as an audience member watching a story. Why, why did we go through these series of betrayals and I'm on the other side of it and I'm not less emotionally invested, but on these other shows, I'm pissed off and I am. So it's just kind of interesting, like, as we go through it, kind of how they they check in on all of that. Well, I think at a certain point, like, you can't, you can't, you have to show your work, right? Like, it's a show, it's almost comes down to a show and tell kind of a storytelling conflict where a lot of, um, a lot of good writing comes with the showing. Like, sometimes, obviously, you have to tell, but you know, usually you want to show what's happening. And so what I mean is, is that if you have characters who keep betraying each other over and over, and yet you have this one character who's like almost breaking the fourth wall being like, hey, but they still love each other. And that's, I want you to feel hurt. As a care, as an audience, you don't buy that, right? Like, you have to be shown within what is happening in your show that these betrayals and this conflict and this angst matters. Like, don't tell me it matters. Show me it matters. Especially when, unfortunately, that is happening outside the show so often. Oh, now. my God. Yes. The writers or the actors or whoever, you know, telling you, it's okay. They still care about each other. And you're looking going, okay, but they don't. They don't. <laughs> At least not in the context of what you put on my screen. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a whole nother issue, right? With like, like one, you're you're breaking, I don't know, some sort of weird rule that at least I have where it's like, you don't tell the audience like what to interpret. That's the job of your work to stand alone. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So yeah, I'm kind of, um, yeah, (laughs) let's just say extra appreciative. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the other really interesting thing about this episode is you, you, you now, you now need a lot of other pieces of later episodes to Mm -hmm. fully contextualize and understand what was going on in this episode. Yeah, this is one of those that changes upon rewatch. Yeah, and it's a lot. I think that you have to, and I'll break it down, because I think there's two different loops, for lack of a better word, going on here. So we've got the like what I'll call the Agent Gale loop, which... 
I think maybe I think we're all in agreement. Like Agent Gale is one of the best recurring characters on any show that I've ever watched. Like, and he's only on four episodes (laughs) of four seasons. And I love this guy so much. And part of it is just like, part of it's the writing, but part of it also is Jay Carnes is just delightful. Um, Can I also say, I want to interject real quick that like, it took me a while to like warm up to him because in my mind, Jay Carnes is Agent Cone from Sons of Anarchy. And the last time you see him, he's, like, dead on a bed, and Jax and Tara are, like, fucking on the floor. And I was like, I've got to, I got to, like, readjust. I got to readjust. <laughs> that was Sons of Anarchy? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's, okay. like, he's, like, a terrible, like, um, stalker boyfriend to in the first season. And, like, um, I mean, that's just it. He, like, stalks his, like, ex-girlfriend, Tara, who's, like, with Jax in a... He's awful. And then when I saw him, I was like, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> Same law, like, still a lawman, but we're readjusting to, like, Agent Gale here. <laughs> right, right. It's like when Varys pops up in uh, season four, you're like, I don't fucking trust this guy at all. Which one? <laughs> Varys oh, pops yes. up in season four. Well, it's also, I guess we can talk about casting for the show, too. Because, I mean, you know, like, whenever Ethan shows up and it's James Callis, like, I literally screamed. I was like, how can you be more perfect? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, it is, um, he's just, he's so fantastic. And it's like, it is now this like iconic recurring character. And then I sat down and I'm like, he's only in four episodes, but it feels like so much more. Mm-hmm. So to kind of understand the whole Agent Gale loop, and we will talk about sort of in a bit, like how you interpret that. But um, he is in 100 years. So he interacts with Cassie and Cole in 1944 in yeah. 100 years. 1953 in Nature, 1961 in Fatherland, and 1966 in After. And there, I, we, I think we are all on the same page in terms of how we interpret this Agent Gale loop. But we also got some feedback on Twitter that there might be some disagreement about that. So I want to try and kind of articulate what those two viewpoints are. But we're going to kind of, I think we all share one viewpoint. And that's how we're going to be discussing it today. But we totally acknowledge it might be the wrong interpretation. Um, so the first interpretation I think that we have is Agent Gale had – when Agent Gale is sitting in this episode across from Cole in 1961, he experienced everything in 1953 with Cole and Cassie. So he knows that this is the day that he's going to die. He knows a lot more about the conspiracy of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys than he's letting on. And – so he goes into crossing that the wall in Berlin, knowing what could happen. And so when we think he's dead, it's a matter of audience perception. And then we find out what really happened. Is that what you guys think as well? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I think there, but there also is a viewpoint among some fans that this is almost what we see in 1966 for la- I'm going to try and articulate it is is really agent gale got a do over and it's a different cycle is that what you guys understood some other folks were saying that it's a different cycle and so what happened in 1961 he actually died but then by the because of whatever time travel mechanism he gets a do over is that what you guys understood some other folks were saying yes. i'm trying yes okay. yes all right. So I think there are 
two different lines that lend two different like varying levels of credence to that. Um, and I, I just want to set this out at the beginning because we are going to be talking about the episode kind of making one assumption. And so if we're wrong, I guess that whole part of the podcast is going to be wrong. <laughs> uh, so the line when Agent Gale is sitting across from Cole and he says, Cole, I've known you for a long time. Yeah. And Cole says, what are you talking about? We only met in 1944, right? And I thought they make a very kind of pointed in both the writing and the performance, Angel Gale is kind of like, oh, yeah, right, sure, right? And and it seemed mm-hmm. to me like he was covering up. Yeah. And I thought later on when I watched season three, he was covering up for all of the things that he knows in his interactions in 1953. Mm-hmm. So I that's sort of what I am – um, and you have his later things about fate, and he's like, fate my ass, and I got to go it alone. And I right. think it's sort of all referring back to he's going into the situation knowing what he has to do. Yeah. Now, there's a line in um, After when Jennifer and Jones are figuring out from the FBI report and the fact that this agent is saying is reporting on Climb the Steps, Ring the Bell – and he quotes H.G. Wells, and that tips them off. Oh, it must be our like sci-fi-loving favorite FBI agent that it's Agent Gale. Jennifer says, unless something changed. Mm-hmm. And she says that to Jones. And, and you know, Jennifer is the primary. Jennifer knows how time works. So I think that those are sort of the two legs to stand on in this sort of debate as to whether Agent Gale knew or it was a do-over. And only I think the writers can tell us for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but we all think that he knew yeah. <laughs> in this I, I mean, episode. I think that he knows. Because even like some of the color dialogue feels really familiar to me. Like I just like brought this scene up because I was like, he has a really great line. And he says to Cole, like, when they're first meeting, he's like, nefarious characters coalesce around you like bum hairs in a drain. <laughs> it's such a great line. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. just, he's like, that's colorful. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, why would you say that to someone if you've only met them once? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that seems like something that's like, oh, I, I've been following this guy. I know this guy. Like, and I can say this to this guy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I've been yeah. waiting. I, I've had this line in my head forever. <laughs> right. And I mean, I I guess I, I guess either way you can, it plays with this idea of fate. Right. But I love the, like, the way this whole idea of how much we have free will, how much is it fate, and thinking about that as we will talk about sort of the choices Agent Gale has mm-hmm. um, within this loop, um, what he has knowledge of, what he doesn't. So I, I, I guess I I like playing around with this idea that he knew because I think it just enriches the watching of this episode so much. So that's right. how we're going to talk about it today. If we're wrong, we're sorry, but – we we have more fun talking about it that way anyway. Yeah. Um, and um, the other big loop to kind of understand really what's going on is we've got like a big chunk of the Olivia origin story loop. Mm-hmm. So we're going to find out. So just if, you, if you're rewatching at home and you want to sort of flesh out watching this episode, if you um, – there's a big scene in season three's Enemy – when um, Olivia is imprisoned within Project Splinter and she's talking to Cole. Mm-hmm. And she will talk about how she 
remembers the moments in this episode and she says to Cole basically like, you know, you'll upend the tables of time to save the people you love, but you left me and you left me to the witness and how she looks back on that, you know, which is really interesting because we'll talk about like Cole wanted to grab her and Ramsey makes choices that prevent that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she looks back on this I don't know if it's quite as a betrayal, but just like you fucking left me behind and I was a kid, right? And look what, look what you fed me to, to these people. Um, and then we'll see the rest of her story unfolding in terms of re- being raised by Mantis in 45 RPM. Mm-hmm. And we will see that the man that Dr. Kirshner that came to Dr. Kirshner when he's the young man at the microscope is the older Army of the Twelve Monkeys henchman um, who is sent by season four Olivia to go talk to Kirshner. Mm -hmm. So if you want to kind of see the way that other pieces of that loop, you kind of need those scenes from Enemy and 45 RPM. Okay. Um, So we opened up really quickly, as we said, um, in Berlin 2016. I love how they kind of do this thing like they did in Immortal, where we are in the same city in different times. Mm -hmm. And she is um, going back to this theme of a thing forever in a box. Um, And I just love the way that that like we're now seeing sort of the most like the biggest like physical manifestation of like what she means by that a thing and we heard her say a thing in a box i think in season 1 and now we're seeing her it's almost kind of like in the last episode in hyena we had jennifer going back to where she was imprisoned by her father and reclaiming that and in some ways by the end of this episode with olivia getting up out of this wheelchair going back to this place of trauma for her she's reclaiming it Mm -hmm. as now her own story kind of as well yeah i have a question yeah uh is there any particular reason for her to be in there besides the fact that he just views her as an experiment um i I always thought it might be the super strength stuff right yeah Yeah, that he was afraid of her Uh he said she had to be taught like discipline and control yeah yeah because no child should be that strong um, also, he was just kind of a dick, if I may. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's a Nazi doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Not a good dude, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but yeah, I love sort of the line where the henchman is like, you know, I, we had no idea this place was so important to our history. And she says, to our future. Mm-hmm. And wow, that is true. (laughs) So not only because of sort of the turning point for her path and getting up out of that wheelchair and what she's going to walk off to go do, but also, I mean, if you stop and think about how, what an important turning point it is that instead of Cole grabbing Olivia from that box, Mm -hmm. she went to Mantis and the Army of the Twelve Monkeys, right? Like we wouldn't have had the whole loop. So, yeah, um, it's kind of I just think it's a great way to set up. It's a little bit disorienting. You're like, why? Why are we in Berlin in 2016? What is the shelled out factory? You've got the big clue of that stuffed animal that's been sitting there that it's going to tell you that this is Olivia mm-hmm. um, way before Mantis calls her Olivia. Do you guys have anything else about that scene? It's just the teddy bear thing is a great visual cue. Like I, every time I rewatch this episode, it kind of gives me a little bit of like a little oof. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like because mm-hmm. you're putting like the childlike. I mean, it's it's good 
again, goes back to good storytelling to not let us forget that, like, Olivia has a past, too. Like, she yep. was a child once, too. And uh, and she was innocent. And she was innocent. Point. And it's tragic what happened to her, you know? They don't uh, veer into the... They don't veer either into, like, excusing her future self and evilness. But, like, it, I think it provides food for thought that she was innocent. She was a child. Like, and there were choices that were made that affected her. You know what I mean? Like, she yeah. didn't have agency over Right, including by our protagonist. Yeah, right? yeah, it complicates so, it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah. There's the line between like, what are your own choices, and then what shapes you. But yeah, yeah. I, I have, I feel this is one of those episodes where I feel the most empathy for her, mm-hmm. and they remind us of it. Right, like this is how Cole is going to torture her, um, right. and even though she was playing along. I'm sure being put in a bat in a, back in a box was not fun for her either, you know? So, yeah. Um, so th- let's go to 2044. Sure. We have this scene with Whitley and Deacon walking out into the Red Storms. They mm-hmm. tell us a lot of important things just really quickly in terms of what's – it's sort of setting the stakes. So obviously we have the Red Storms. We have this, like, horrifying, like – scenario where a child comes to them alone Mm -hmm. his parents have been killed by the red storms and instead of choosing to go with these adults that could help him the kid turns around and walks back into the storm yeah that's a it's a cold open (laughs) hell of a beginning to this episode (laughs) right i mean fuck like if kids are choosing to do that it's just mm-hmm. like things are really bad so that's setting i think it's an important reminder that's setting the stakes for the debate we're gonna have sort of like in the situation room shortly right. um it also is letting us know some important things with respect to just sort of morale um heading mm-hmm. into that coup so you've got members of the west seven are deserting and Whitley kind of teasing Deacon, being like, yeah, well, we know why you're still here, um, referring to Cassie, which is also going to sort of set us up for this soul-crushing scene between <laughs> Deacon and Cassie. Um, if you guys didn't have anything else about that, I think we can jump into sort of this pregame debate um, mm-hmm. between Team Splinter. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, like the red storms like coming. I, I don't know why, but every time I rewatch, it gets more chilling. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, because when you're first watching it and binging it, you're just like, oh, cool, this is awesome. And then as you as you know what kind of happens, and I guess, is it 2-7 where they really play with those horror elements of, like, the uh, people from different times kind of like... Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, gosh, it's just... Ha- knowing all of that and then watching it at this point, you're like, oh, man, you guys are fucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's funny also, like, you know... The whole end of this show, right, is the Red Forest, is the destruction right. of the universe. So this, they come perilously close to that, right? <laughs> right? And so we now know what that, it it both, um, I think it like reminds you how close they came in season two to the destruction of the universe and really mm-hmm. sets the stakes for this Absolutely. I, That's debate, a really good point. Yeah. You know? and But it also, I think grounds that post-series debate we have about the Red Forest because it's like, guys, remember what it looks like? (laughs) It looks really fucking terrible. Yeah, like, uh, remember, like, the old men who were, like, turned into, like, 
baby mutant thingies. Like, I don't think people would choose that, especially Cassie, who knows. Like, (laughs) but also, I think, you know, you pointed out something that's really, I think, really key and why uh, seasons three and four work is that we know what's at stake. Right? Like, mm-hmm. I haven't thought about it in that way before. But yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Like, because of these episodes and the way season two ends, like, it's not like they have to give us construct another end game in a way. Like, it's just another layer of like, well, like, we know what the Red Forest is, like, we know more and more about what's happening. And so do the characters. And that's why there's just so much tension from the jump in season three. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. It's the same end game. It's just Mm -hmm. that they were able to stave off the army, the 12 monkeys first attempt at bringing about the Red Forest. Yeah. I mean, we watch a kid basically get like, it was before Avengers, but it's like he gets snapped. (laughs) It turns into dust, right? Like, this is not good. (laughs) So, um, okay. So if you guys have anything else about that. Setting up the pregame debate, you've got Jones letting us know that she has found this explosion at a factory in upstate New York in 1957, which just makes me internally go like, ah, <laughs> thinking about you don't everything. Have any feelings about nope. that, do you? No feelings at all. <laughs> no feelings at all. Neither do you, Megan. <laughs> no, not at all. I don't do feelings. What are you talking about? You guys are so dry and just like, I mean, basically robots, really. <laughs> Oh. Anytime someone says 1957, I'm like, ah! Um. <laughs> Even in like, uh, like just at a museum or something on a timeline, it says 1957 and then like CC keels over. She's crying. Takes out her like fangirl flask, takes a swig. <laughs> I'm like Agent Gale, but really it's just about casserole feels. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I think it's an interesting point that Cole makes that the only thing they know about 1957, the only reason why they know about it is from the enemy. And mm-hmm. it kind of reminds you that, like, while they are going to thwart the Red Forest by what they are finally able to do in 1957, they also, by being there and being together at the House of Cedar and Pine and conceiving Ethan for Everyone but season four, Olivia, that is going according to the 12 Monkeys plan. Yeah. So. <laughs> so good, though. Right? Oh, it's so good. So when Cole's like, you know, but the only thing we know about it is sort of, you just keep getting these reminders of like, man, whether they're going to Titan or whether they're going to 1957, it's still all going according to the bad guys' they plan. They don't have the information. Yeah. You know, right. they just don't have it. And so they think that they're playing... They think that they're playing a, a maybe kind of a, a lopsided game of chess. And what they're really playing is just like, I don't know, universal pickup sticks or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> like where it's just like they have no idea. They don't know the scope in a way yet or like the actual like, oh, there's well, some yeah. metaphor here that works where they're just like kind of poking holes at something. They don't really understand the game yet. Right. Well, there's so many loops, though, of people who don't understand the game, right? Because you have our protagonists that don't understand the game, right? So whether they go to Titan or whether they go to 1957, it all is still playing into the witnesses' plan, right? But you even have the army of the 12 monkeys. They think the whole loop is this, you know, like Mary and Joseph having the 
their savior at the house, like conceiving mm-hmm. their savior at the house of Cedar and Pine and bringing him to Titan. And they also aren't in on the whole thing, right? Because right. that's not season four Olivia's plan. So yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of people in loops thinking that they know what's going on and they don't. Right. Um. So, okay. So that brings us to the debate in the situation room. And I, I don't know about you guys, but like, I, I think this is a really, I think it's a really good debate. Because if if you were in that room, I don't like I'm curious, like, let's go through sort of the points. But I, I think it's pretty even in terms of trying to figure out what you're going to do. Right. So you've got Jones and Cole mm-hmm. and their argument is, did you guys see outside? <laughs> like, <laughs> we're fucked in a few yeah. days. Right. And it, it then so like we can go to 1957. We stop because, I mean, the thing that kind of makes your brain hurt is Cole and Cassie. In 1957, am I thinking about this the right way? They've already failed, right? Like, the reason why these red storms are happening is because that primary, the wife who is sick at the factory, has already been paradoxed. Does that make sense? Mm. Because what's going to undo it is when Cole resets resets everything by using the red tea time travel. Right. I Yeah, I think that works. Because, because because the storms are already happening. I mean, in terms of the, the storms action, or is it just because of the the paradoxes that have already happened, and and that's why the storms are like approaching, but the critical one hasn't happened yet. So when yeah, yeah that's is my that the right process. way? Okay, yeah, all that's right. Mine. Okay, so when Jones is saying these are like gunshot wounds, it's like they're yeah. bleeding out. <laughs> right. Time is bleeding out right now. All right, so you've got Jones and Cole. Saying, if we go to 1957, we stop the final primary paradox, time will correct the storms, then we can go after the witness. But if we don't stop the red storms, then everything's going to be destroyed. We're going to lose the time machine, and then it's game over, right? Mm -hmm. And the cons, which Cassie and Ramsey point out to that plan, is number one, this is all theoretical. And Ramsey kind of makes the point, like, nothing ever works when she plays God, which Is kind of true, right? Like all of Jones's previous theories from kill Leland Goines to kill me mm-hmm. at Project Spearhead, whatever it is, hasn't worked, right? And I guess and- there's also like, I guess too, like there's no guarantee that just because you stop the final one that like everything else just isn't fucked by like dent of the ongoing reaction, right? Like, Sure. So anyway. Yeah, I mean- That this- is though the only part of the 12 Monkeys plan that they know. Yeah. True. Right. That's true. So um, they're kind of just like shooting in the dark if they go after the witness to some degree. Because like yeah. they know that they're trying to paradox primaries. Like what do they know outside of that right now? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so and then the um, – so just – yes. So but just the other con to Jones and Cole's plan that Cassie points out is in four store – in four days, the storm will destroy the facility, the tethers are broken, and they will lose the chance to ever take out the leader of this whole conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So those sort that's sort of the pros and cons for Jones and Coles's position. You've got Ramsey and Cassie, and they have sort of the, as Ramsey calls it, cut the head off the snake plan. Mm-hmm. We go to 61, we find Kirshner, we find out what he knows about Titan and, wit- and the witness. We know the witness is in Titan from what Cassie has seen. Um, we go to the head of this whole war and we take him out. And and the idea being, let's stop always being one step behind and actually take the fight to them. Mm-hmm. Um, the con is, it's not going to stop the storm and the universe will be destroyed. <laughs> no so, 
Nope. Oh, right. <laughs> so, also, though, the one thing about that, I, I know that Ka- uh, oh, Lord Cassie brought up the point that they only have four days, but isn't that the same on both sides? I mean, they're saying let's go talk to Kirshner to like find out some stuff about the witness. It's not like they know where he is. How long is it going to take to get this supposed information and then maybe travel somewhere else or to another time or whatever to yeah. actually figure out how to kill him? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. I. I mean. I think. I think the other. I think that they 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 both have legitimate arguments, right? Like, if you were Adler, Cassie, or Ramsey, I can see why at this point you are frustrated with all of this is just theories and none of the theories are working, right? And now we finally may know the location or like we know the name of the location. Why don't we go find out the where the person is behind all of this and take them out? Right. So I don't know, like when you guys are sitting, like watching them debate, it's a little bit hard because we know that like in some ways the Titan plan is doomed. Right. Um, Now now we do when we're watching it. But like when you guys were watching this debate, did one sort of like emotionally or intellectually appeal to one of you guys more than the other? Well, I think the one thing is even on original watch back in, you know, 209, Jennifer's already saying, like, Titan leads to death. So I listen to Jennifer. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Yeah. So let's not do that. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think the other, what I think is interesting sort of on rewatch, once you can kind of, like, there's the, both both sides of this debate think that they're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And they both think that the other's, viewpoint is going to end in like the destruction of the universe (laughs) right i mean they're both trying to save everyone they just disagree on the best way to do that um which is like my favorite kind of right it's like not it's uh, we'll get into sort of the personal layers to this but like everybody's trying to do the right thing and trying to save everyone they just disagree on what is the best way to do that and the stakes couldn't be higher, right? right? And and Jones is saying there isn't time to do both missions. So it's kind of like a perfectly constructed dilemma. Mm-hmm. And neither side is going to walk out of that room satisfied, right? If they don't get their way um, because of the stakes and because both sides believe so much that, that their way is the right way to go about doing things. I think sort of like the interesting from like a character perspective, you have Jones say – I would rather, if I'm betting my life, it be a mission of hope. Yeah, which is crazy. When I remember every time I watch that scene and she says that, I'm just like, for some reason, it's shocking to me. (laughs) Yeah. Her, Hannah returning to her is just such a shift in a way for her priorities. Right. Her, Her reasoning, her like internal logic shifts. Right. I think it's like, I think the scene and who's on what side is a really fascinating look at how where you are emotionally mm-hmm. can influence on what on what you are deciding to do. Exactly. Absolutely. So Ramsey has just lost his son. Cassie has just had this like violation of her mind, of her body, of of which had horrible repercussions for Dr. Eklund and for Sam, right? So they're coming at it. You can absolutely understand why they're coming at it from like what Jones calls revenge, mm-hmm. right? Like they're not, neither of them are feeling particularly hopeful. Right. And she's, <laughs> right and she's being pretty dismissive of what they've been through. Like, 
You know what I mean? Like, there's not mm-hmm. a lot of, like, empathy in these scenes for the other viewpoint. <laughs> well, right. And Cole hasn't – he's lost his father. But as of right now, he hasn't – like, there hasn't been as great a personal cost to him yet. Right. right? We're going to see Cole in a very different place after Ramsey dies or where after he thinks it's his son, right, who's the witness. Mm-hmm. And so right now – you can totally understand why Jones and Cole are like, no, we have to pick, we have to pick saving someone, right? right? And, and it's going back to the debate at the beginning of the season, save someone versus kill someone. And it totally makes sense from a character standpoint, who's on what side. Right. And Cole, you know, like beyond like the past stuff that he always feels guilty for, in a lot of ways in the show, he's not like, like you say, his real, like, I don't know, grief and anger and you know like his real kind of almost like dirtying him up as a care in a way his emotions in a way like he's still kind of in like that savior mode like you're saying like he's still like the hero of the story who is going Mm -hmm. to make the right call which is always saving someone and hope and you know what i mean like all of Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff like um yeah it's it's really to me that really starts to get complicated for him in season three when he keeps trying to find Cassie and he can't you know what mm-hmm. I mean that's when he really starts to like like yeah have that per- like you're saying like Cassie and um not Sam uh Ramsey already have that kind of personal skin in the game that really like uh personal violations from the 12 monkeys and the witness but Cole quite hasn't really had it yet and it's coming it's coming for him it's coming right like he's gonna (laughs) it's coming for a man and it's gonna be like what joan says you're a mad dog at the beginning of season three so Mm -hmm. yeah so i think it's just sort of like an interesting like where these characters are in their journeys what their experiences have been fuels so much of how they're coming at this debate which i think that this debate has legit points on both sides Mm mm-hmm yeah, so, sure. um, and then, like, just to add th- to that, they also did the work in the last episode for us to understand why emotionally Adler is where he is at. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he is, he lost a son, and it's being shoved in his face that Jones got her daughter back, and yep. he ha- he hasn't gotten a son back. Um, so that, if that, like, I think there's also some interesting, like, they do a lot of sort of long pauses, um, Cole is like appealing to Cassie, right? Like, are you with me? Um, and then you kind of have her like shaking her head and him kind of like absorbing that blow. Um, they're it's kind the of losing that haunts us. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, I mean, what I like about this, both in this episode and the next episode with Ramsey, is that the wheels are turning in Ramsey's head. So he sees the tide is turning. He sees the decision Jones is going to make. And he plays along. And that is, I think, that's the Ramsey that was trained by Olivia and the mm-hmm. army of the 12 monkeys oh, in yeah. that jail cell, you know? Mm-hmm. So he's, he's the wheels patience. are turning. Yeah, he's like, okay, I'm going to have to go about this a different way. And mm-hmm. he goes right into trying to, like, as Adler says, don't patronize me, right? Like, he's trying to manipulate Adler. But that's a Ramsey that knows how to pull off whether it's this betrayal, because the betrayal is Ramsey's idea, and clearly it's Cassie goes along with it, but mm-hmm. he's the one that comes up with this plan. Right. 
And in the next episode, he's the one who's orchestrating a coup from a jail cell. And it's like, man, that's the Ramsey that learned how to do this in that jail cell in Japan. Yeah. Um, so we have that moment with Adler um, where he's like, don't patronize me. I lost a son too. I know what it is to be denied retribution. And you have sort of this first stage of team coup mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is born. But then they don't let us know what's going to happen. And I think it's interesting the way this betrayal, the way it rolls out, the audience is in Cole's point of view, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. we don't know what's – like, they give us a hint that maybe something's coming with Adler saying, I don't make the calls, I just do the programming. But then they kind of go out of their way to make us think everything's okay, and then the shock hits us at the same time it hits Cole. When he's roofied and he sees oh, JFK man. on the bar TV. Oh, it's so good. All right. So oh, we'll it get really to, is. We'll get to it in a minute, but we got to do this, even though it's painful, this oh, Cassie yeah. and Deacon scene, um, which is just fucking ouch. Um, I got to say, this is the episode that turned me around. These next, these two episodes are the ones that turn me around on Deacon. Um, cause I didn't love him as much as everyone, like, even though I love him now, this was sort of like, I guess just seeing him, you know, learning that there's a heart that beats within that sociopathic yeah. <laughs> chest. So- sociopathic chest. So the thing, the first ouch to me is that she wasn't even going to say goodbye. No, she's gone. <laughs> so he has to come to her. And just the way that, like, the way that this scene is acted, Cassie is so, like, she so doesn't want to fucking be there in this conversation. Mm -mm. And his demeanor is so, like, vulnerable and kind of nervous. And this is not the deacon with the swagger that we're used to seeing. Yeah. And he tells her and this is interesting, like, he never let her in on this childhood memory he had of watching her at the CDC and those, you know, what is that, those emerald greens, mm-hmm. right, that got him through. So it's like, not only was she like a beacon of hope when he was like this, you think of like a lonely, abused child deacon in the middle of an apocalypse, like it's like heartbreaking, but it's also probably like kind of like his first adolescent crush. Right. He's hot for teacher. (laughs) It's really funny. Not funny. I don't know what it is to think about how much older Cassie and Jennifer are than like Cole and Deacon and Ramsey. Yeah. (laughs) They've lived. um, It is interesting to think about like how much life that they've lived in comparison, you know? Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, But also like now watching this scene and him telling her about his childhood memory and the CDC in the series finale when an earlier version of Deacon recognizes and says, hey, you're the lady from the TV. Cassie's going to remember this conversation. And that's when she's going to hug him and say, you're a good man. And know based on the fact that he shared this childhood memory, like what that would mean to him. And it's just like, uh, on top of the sort of Watching Deacon's heart get crushed it kind of is like an added layer of feels now I felt when I was watching it. Um, do you guys want to take us through sort of the, it was just one night? <laughs> I mean, just ouch. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like, and just the way, like, she kind of says it without, and then the, uh, 
he just right. looks so like taken he i mean he just looks like a puppy that's been kicked or something <laughs> like that you know yeah. and that's so not like deacon so it adds this real like nice you know like you said uh kind of surprising but not surprising sort of complexity mm-hmm. um you start to see that he is a little bit softer and it's the end of the world so yeah like of course you want to go out with somebody you know not by yourself and yeah i mean so if you're deacon you are walking into this room she wasn't going to say goodbye to you you're seeking her out you realize the stakes right this could be the last conversation you ever have with her right like Mm -hmm. given the stakes of these of this mission um he not only has his feelings that he's, uh, you know, his romantic feelings that he's kind of trying to, you know, he's gearing up kind of to tell her, right? And he's starting with sort of like, this is what you've always meant to me, right? He and says, that- you, you mean a lot to me. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's not something that when you're just like being cavalier, that's meaning, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then the answer is, it was just one night. And you're Ouch! like, ah! Just like I, it makes me curl up into a ball of like secondhand, not secondhand embarrassment, but just like oh my god, right? And right. then he's, it hurts on so many levels because it's like that's what you're reducing this to. Like I didn't come to you being like, hey, can we please have more sex? Like right. this meant something to me, and you're like, he, she, I mean, she's dismissing him so hard on every level. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it yeah. is an interesting moment, a little bit of a. Um, touchstone for like what do people do in times of extreme stress or you know at their perceived in the world and some people close down connection to save themselves from hurt and then some people open up connection because they finally feel like maybe they can you know like maybe deacon finally feels that like well fuck it it's the end so yeah i'm mm-hmm. gonna go tell her what she means to me and cassie is like um, what are emotions? Like, no, <laughs> I'm shutting this down. Yeah, yeah. shutting Sh- shut that down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, she says that part of me is long gone. Yeah. It has to be the only way I can do this, right? So it's also letting you know, like, the scene maybe on first watch feels really like you just feel for Deacon. But, right. But it's clear from the way she's, like, that part of me is long gone. It has to be. And kind of the reaction shots she has where you can see that, like, you know, she's she's putting on sort of, like, this is what I have to do. But it's not all stone cold. No. Right? You know, like, she's kind of closing her eye. Like, she knows what she's doing. No. Every time her words seem cruel, her face betrays her. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, the other thing is, I know, and he's like, you, I know, and when he's like, you came to me, right? It's kind of this, like, she's dismissing it, and he's like, okay, well, hold up, though, right? Like, you're, that's a dick, for sure. He's like, you came to me, like, come on. And then it's like, the answer is like, yeah, because that's because I thought I was going to die. It's just like, oh, fuck. That's the only time you want to have sex with me? <laughs> you literally it's like a last two people on earth situation. <laughs> I mean, he tries to get a dig at her and then she like just roundhouse kicks him. She's like, no. <laughs> it was just a whoopsie doodle, dude. Like, <laughs> taught me well with this fighting business. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I think the other like character kind of through line that I really like is 
we saw Cassie in season one when she was like in the full depths of like Cassandra complex, right? Like alone, hadn't between the first time she saw Cole and then when she met him in the hotel lobby and she was in Haiti and she slept with Henri. And it, it's kind of like this character through line of like, that that's how you know like it's a human thing to seek out that comfort you know and i love that they have a woman doing it right Mm -hmm. and just kind of owning it and being like yeah i thought it was the end of the world so i reached out right like to feel something at the end of the world like come on (laughs) (laughs) right so need a little need a little oxytocin to keep going So what, is it, what are you like coming to summer 2019? Coming. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> it was so bad. I knew it when I said how bad it was. <laughs> wah, wah, like uh, it just didn't. I'm not gonna let that one lie. Put him. <laughs> so that's and then you have um like the acting in the scene Todd Stashwick just kind of like absorbing that blow oh, and yeah. that that got it is just like oh it's so painful and then you have the like I will say this you finally fit in around this place mm-hmm. and it's just such like uh, there's just so much to unpack there right like mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and it's funny Megan you were on the you were on the po- were you on the podcast where yeah, this season, the pr- was it the premiere? No, I guess it was no. season two. No, we were talking about like, if you think back to this scene and the beginning of this season when Deacon and Cassie first met. Yeah. And he was giving her that Deacon's guide, lesson one to Deacon's guide to surviving the post-apocalypse, <laughs> right? And now you think about how much these two characters have both been changed by each other. Mm-hmm. But also the circumstances, right? Like, because at the beginning of the season, when Cassie was first thrust into this post-apocalypse, like, he was the one telling her, like, this is how you hold the knife. This is what you have to do, right? Like, he's the one that, in part, taught her to be hard this way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But by getting... exactly the irony of this whole, like, comment, right? Right. And now, but by getting to know her and what she means to him, it has softened and opened him up. And so they're kind of, like... Kind of, I mean, not quite like the ships passing in the night, but they've both changed one another. And so it's just the way that lands is just Mm. so brutal. That's interesting. That's a really, you know, that's kind of a trope that you don't, you don't see played out in such a way that has such a final conclusion, right? Because usually people will keep that relationship or writers will keep that relationship around for some sort of like love triangle tension. Mm-hmm. But it is nice that they let it resolve on a minor note, right? That like you like you just said, which I thought was really insightful, they changed each other and then they moved on. Like they're not com- like not saying that they ever re- were really compatible, but like they kind of changed each other in such a way that like Cassie grew harder and Deacon grew a little bit more open and that wasn't going to work for either of them. Right. But it's definitely I, their the same thing happens with Cole. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Cassie... Just, he was first choice, ultimately. <laughs> Which Deacon, you know, Deacon Deacon that says in the next... <laughs> well, Deacon says in the next episode, like, I knew I knew I was in trouble as soon as you came back, right? Yeah. Like, it's this very adult... Um, 
you can have different kinds of relationships and people can mean different things to you. And of course there's jealousy and of course there's hurt that goes along mm. with that. But it doesn't, it's not like Deacon stops being an important part of Cassie's life. Right. right? Um, even all the way through like to him. The end. To the ah! end. Right. <laughs> I just got super emo about how she goes and runs up and hugs him. And doesn't she say something like, you're a good man? Yes. Oh, that yeah. trope kills me. Like, oh. You're a good man trope, or like you're a good person trope. Oh. I know, right? And I mean, he's gonna like survive, and he doesn't realize what he is going through inside the jail in Titan, but it will be to save her. And you, they will constantly kind of revisit, like, you will feel this sort of like you know, this insecurity Deacon has, right? Yeah. Like, you know, he shows up to save her and she's like, where's Cole? And you're like, oh, <laughs> right? Or like he shows back up when they finally get splintered back at the beginning of season three and everyone's like, oh, it's Deacon, right? And then they're all excited to see Cassie, right? And you feel that, like, where's oh, my God. place on the word of the witness? Right. Is it he's the one left at Resurrection where he's like, I'm not even fucking on here. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I think it's in season three, but like he gets left behind at the beginning of season four right like it's this constant like but but he still chooses to do the right thing i know (laughs) i know so sorry we're just gonna like we gotta rein it back or we're gonna go off a cliff of deacon feels i just want to say it's so good it's It's so so, it's so actually subversive writing to like you keep thinking he is gonna reach the point where he betrays them Mm-hmm. And man, he does not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, they're part of giving him sort of that self-worth that that I'm going to be a good man and not like my father. And yeah. his experiences with them help him, like, a- attain that, right? And like they his- even play with you that he's going to turn. And you believe it because you're like, well, fuck, yeah. Like- yeah, absolutely. And, uh- so yeah, good. and they do that with still allowing him to have sort of these human petty, right? Like human. in the next oh, episode, yeah. she's like, "I get it, it's not personal." He's like, "Oh no, it's personal, <laughs> right?" Like, <laughs> I love that line. He's like, "No, no, no." So uh, Deacon goes off screen to start working on his first bottle of whiskey in two episodes. <laughs> we'll see him again at the end. <laughs> so that takes us to if you guys have anything else about. Uh, Deacon and Cassie that takes us to them splintering away Mm -hmm. Um, and I love how they do the full splintering ritual Mm -hmm. right you've got Adler you've got um, Adler and Jones with their uh, the glasses on which I think it's really cool kind of the way they link that later on in the opera scene when people have the opera glasses on Um, and the whole like initiate splinter sequence. They just lull us in, right, to thinking everything's going according to plan. This is just another routine splintering. And I love the Cole. St. Jones is going to, like, try and say, uh, like, goodbye, right? Because it could be the last time she sees him. And Cole's just like, we got this. And it's like, if there is any rule in television, is that when a character says, (laughs) we've got this, you don't fucking got it. <laughs> right? Like, shit is about to go wrong. Um, and I guess just sort of like, so they kind of like lull you into all of that. And then they take us to the Emerson Hotel. And 
if you sort of like setting up, I think they did some like really great work to set up making this scene hurt even more. Mm-hmm. In in addition to just how much the scene hurts because Ramsey and Cassie are like playing with all of like, right? They're playing the parts when Cole thinks that they're being like his two people well, there with like, him, right? What they do is they, and Aaron Stanford plays this perfectly, is he just looks so relieved and happy that his like the people who mean the most in the world to him are like okay with him and they're drinking together and it's gonna be okay because he has like Ramsey and Cassie by his side. I mean it's just like they just go for the like jugular thing. Oh man. They use drinks so many times in this show as like a unifying moment. Yes. Yes, I I mean so like setting up this moment, you've got a few episodes ago when they were in 1944 and Ramsey and Cassie were at the bar and they had sort of that conversation where Ramsey said, Cole is loyal to a fault. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, that is right. Like it is both a strength and a blind spot for yeah. Cole. Right. And it is playing out painfully in this scene. Like he cannot fathom that they are not with him. In this moment, right? right? And so he's not suspicious at all. Um, you also had um, a scene in Bodies of Water, right? Cassie ordering that whiskey sour for Cole was kind mm-hmm. of like an olive branch, right? So this whole idea that like sharing a drink together, right? It's like, you know, it's it's not quite like, it's not quite like the like, <laughs> I was trying to think, I'm like, you know, it's like Red wed. it's like the Red Wedding, right? Mm-hmm. Like you invited me into this celebration and that's like where a betrayal happens. Yeah. But like, Sharing a drink with your the two people, Ramsey and Cassie are like Cole's two people. And we've just watched in the last episode Ramsey and Cassie admitting that the heart of their issue with each other is that Cole is both their person. Mm-hmm. And now they're together betraying him. And you're right. Like, he's so grateful and he's so like, you know, like – they're just, they're, pl- thank you for being here at the end. Having uh, you two here means a lot. You're just God. sitting there, like, I just am watching with, like, my head and my hands, like, oh, <laughs> Cole, like, it hurts so much, right? Um, one really quick, like, song note, the song that's playing on the back, in the background, mm-hmm. um, there's two Cole, there's two 1950s songs that play, and I think, I think this is right. The one that's playing in this scene is Things to Do by Carl Kokomo, which is from 1955. So it's kind of like, um, the song could have j- easily been playing in 1957 or 1961, whereas the song that's playing in the lobby when Cole talks to Gail is Cookin' by Al Casey Combo, mm-hmm. which is from 1961. So, like, even the song cues are playing with, like, ah, you don't know if it's 1957 or 1961, yeah. but uh-huh. when we know it's 1961, then a song is playing that could only have been in 1961. That's so awesome. It's, it's Whoever so, is in charge of that, excellent. It's, you know? Right? It's so fun. So, you've got the whole drink to that, right? And it is mm-hmm. a betrayal in, like, the actual glass is the betrayal, right? Like, Cassie has put a roofie in there. Um, and you have Cole reminiscing with Ramsey about what they used to drink when they were together with the West Seven. You have Cassie laughing along, bottoms up Cole. You know she's the one that had to figure out what to put in that drink, right? Because she's the doctor. Mm-hmm. Where did she get something to drug him? 
Uh, I bet she planted it for herself in the Emerson hotel room <laughs> at some point. <laughs> She's like, "Well, I'm gonna need to drug Cole. <laughs> Keep the or she or they have the they have drawer. Uh, they have medical supplies in um, Raritan, right? So she could have just slipped something in her jacket and brought it with her, right? Because they've hatched the plan before they've left. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, I mean, you have sort of the whole thing, right? We see G- we see the JFK footage. Um, and then our, like, even the way they film it, it, we are in Cole's point of view, right? Like, it's getting fuzzy. We, we hear JFK talking. I think he actually, I went back and tried to listen to it. He's actually talking about West Berlin and the wall. Um, and then it's, what did you do to me? And then it focuses on Cassie's face. I'm sorry, Cole, we had to. Mm. And then you then you get the time card, 1961. Oh, Boom. so good. It's they just, so good. They Pacing with this show is just so good. Oh. <laughs> it's like slam your fists on the table. It's it so is. good. It um, is. To go along with your point about how anytime so- somebody says we got this, they don't got it. Anytime somebody says we had to, they didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, sort of like everybody's mad at each other. Like, you have the betrayal, right? Like, Like, let's just take it like... Cole's two people fucking roofied him and then robbed him (laughs) and left him stranded in that hotel room when the actual fate of the universe is on the line, right? But, like, everyone's mad at each other for making unilateral choices, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Cassie and Ramsey are pissed at Cole and Jones because they're the ones that made the call and they feel like it's not the right call. And then they turn around and they unilaterally make the call for the team, right? right? So, like, yeah, um... So you've got Cole wakes up probably with a splitting headache, having been drugged and betrayed and robbed by his friends. And it's just like, what a fucking terrible morning. Yeah. <laughs> like waking up in that. And you have him like open the safe and they've taken the guns and he sees the desk, right? All the passports. And it's just like he is up a creek. Oh, my God. Uh, I just, uh, I mean, can you imagine, though, like, not only that, have your friends done that to you, you're literally in the wrong time in the spokes, like, in the scope <laughs> of the universe. <laughs> like, not only have your friends fucked you over, like, I don't, there's something, like, really cosmically kind of almost humorous about, like, you're also in the wrong time. <laughs> yeah. Right. You can't get back and you're, like, wholly unprepared for this mission. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? Like, he doesn't have, he was even saying, like, we're getting looks for our clothes. Like, he doesn't have money. He doesn't have anything. And he's just fucking stranded with a splitting headache. And his friends, his, the two people that mean the most in the world did this to him. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that takes us to um, when Cole walks over to the desk. I love the symbolism with that 1944 photograph now. Because you have on one side, you've got Cassie and Cole smiling, right? And we all know what that photo is really about. But it's like on one side is the person who betrayed him. And then he turns it over and there's what Agent Gale wrote. And there's the symbol of somebody that he can call for help. Um, So he places the call to the FBI. And then we've got Agent Gale is back (laughs) in the lobby with Cole. And it's crazy because, you know, they're both commenting on the fact that Cole hasn't aged and Agent Gale certainly has. So let me see if I'm thinking about this correctly. For Cole, he hasn't seen Gale for a few months, but it's been for this Cole 17 years 
of of time passing in Gail's appearance. If that makes uh, sense. From Cole's perception. From Because he's not a different Cole, per se. Well, Just, no, no, right. Yeah, from Cole's point of view. Right. It's, you know, the last time he saw Agent Gale was 1944, and now it's 1961. So in terms of aging, Gale is 17 years older than the last time Cole has seen him. Sure. Is that sort of the right way to put mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. So for Gale, we think it's been eight years since he has seen Cole in 1953, but Cole looks exactly the same. <laughs> So it's just sort of like, for both of them, it's kind of a mind fuck, just in terms of like how their physical appearance has changed or not changed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have like, since we're coming at this, assuming that Gail knows everything that happened in 1953, Gail has, Gail has been, he says he's been investigating Mantis, who he actually, like Mantis and Gail are are kind of for three out of the four episodes that Gail is in, he and Mantis kind of go hand in hand. Like they're they're kind of like part of the same loop. Um, because she was outside of the tent in 1953 when little pallid man hands him Ethan's drawing. Um, but mentioning Mantis is also a teaser, right? It's reminding us we're going to see her at the end of this episode. Um, so when he says knowing the world is going to end makes a man gloomy, yeah. <laughs> we see the we see the flask. We and the hear beautifully the- appointed messenger bag. I was just like, damn, Robbers, <laughs> whoever. It's also kind of an indication, though, if you think about it, that he's got more information. Yeah, I yeah, mean, what he saw in forty four, you know, was enough to. I, I don't know. To me, you could like write some of that off as far as just like I think I'm crazy, <laughs> but the more he's seen. Well, right, right? Like, I mean, in terms of what he heard in 1944, so... It was limited information. They still thought it was about, you know, yeah. flag stuff, mostly. Right. So so we... Just kind of getting at what this has done. You know, in some ways, Ancient Gale is kind of like another Cassandra, right? And yeah. we saw in season one what it was like for Cassie to have this information that the world is going to end and kind of limited means about what to do about it, right? And in some ways, we will see scenes in nature of sort of leading up to 1953 that that Agent Gale almost got fired from the FBI, that they passed his reports around, like, quote, the funny papers. Um, his partner is making fun of him when nature um, opens up um, about his obsession with the 12 monkeys in the Emerson Hotel, right? So, like... You've got sort of like his marriage broke up. He doesn't see his granddaughter. He's lost the respect of his professional colleagues. Like this has come at like a great personal cost to him, Mm -hmm. right? You also have sort of that like he says knowing the world is going to end makes a man gloomy, right? Like it's – I think think there's two levels to that. So the first is, right, like what he says later on, I see the face of my daughter and I see someone who's already dead. And that knowledge, like Cassie had in season one. But he also has known since 1953 that this is the day he's supposed to die. Yeah. You know? And so you have had to sit there for those eight years struggling with, right? When Cole called him, he's making an active like, he has had to process that, struggle with what he's going to do with that information. Like, right? Does Cole says, when I call you, just, I'm a douche. Write me off. Don't don't come help me. Yeah. Right? Like, 
And so he's had to like think about for eight years. He knows so much more about this conspiracy. He's seen the horror of those people being murdered in the tent. He knows that it's kind of like this world, like conspiracy where they're like grabbing people from different catastrophes, right? Like everything he learns in 1953, knowing that he's going to die and has had to sit with that for eight years. And he still shows up still when shows Cole up. calls him. Gail right? is like the noblest ever. Well, he knows he's going to attempt to stop it, but he really doesn't know if he can either. Yeah. So he's like in this weird spot of like, does it make any difference what I do? Right. Well, because he asked Cole, did, did it make a difference? And Cole says, I don't know. Right. So it's this leap of faith. Not, you know, like we always were like, Agent Gale is always there when Cole calls him, right? Like, the, he's, he's. I mean, it's a chance to do something, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But no, I mean, on one hand, it's active. like, you can't not go, you know, because it's like, God, I'm sitting around with all this freaking information. Like, let me play in this game, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I just, I have so many Agent Gale feels like thinking about everything he knows, like just the first part, everything he knows about. What could potentially happen to him on this day? What is what what the stakes are, right? Like mm-hmm. he knows way more than we ever understood until you watch season three, right? So just getting back to their conversation, um, you have him, he outlines the stakes of this episode, right? Like you've got the Berlin Wall is being built, um, you've got Mossad hunting Kirshner, right? Like it's It is a really, we'll get into sort of the historical stuff in a minute, but he's outlining for the audience that this is like a really particularly dangerous situation to be trying to grab someone. Um, And then you have that line that we talked about before, you know, Cole, I've known you a long time. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) And then Cole says, what, I've just met you once? And he's like, yeah, no, absolutely. Just in my dreams, Cole. Just in my dreams. I just think about you all the time. It feels like we're close. I write fanfic. (laughs) I mean, he probably does think about Cole a lot. But like, yeah. So we talked about, like, I I just wanted to, like, unpack everything, even personally, that Gail knows about Cole in this moment, right? That he's holding in. And has a pretty, like, he slips a little bit, but he's got a pretty good game face, right? Like, so he is sitting there and Cole is like, my two friends betrayed me, roofied me, robbed me, and left me. <laughs> right? Like, that's a that's a bad night, Cole. <laughs> it's a really fucking bad night. Seems like something for, like, the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, what Gail knows is that... Cassie and Cole in the future, in their future, but his past are in love, right? And he, he has this conversation with Cole when they're in the car and Cassie's at the graveyard where she meets Shaw, where he's like referring to 1944, like your sister, you must have taken me for a dim-witted schmo. Mm-hmm. You had me fooled in 44, but this time's different. The way she looks at you, the way you look at her. Gail knows all of this. Yeah. <laughs> and Cole hasn't happened for Cole yet, right? Um, he's listened to Cassie's entire graveyard speech mm-hmm. to Shaw and and sat there next to Cole, watching Cole absorb all of that about like this moment that she was happy and that she lost her family. And so like, even if he doesn't know the specifics, he knows that like, he knows what they mean to one another and that they have been through some shit. He's right? a shipper. 
<laughs> he's a total casserole he's shipper. A, he's a casserole shipper. <laughs> um, and like, then listen, he's... you dumb fucks. <laughs> <laughs> now kiss. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's like, I know eventually you guys are going to write. Yeah. But he also had the specific conversation that he had in the car before, in 1953, before Cassie goes into the tent, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like this great... This episode, Gail knows more than Cole mm-hmm. and Cassie, right? In 1953, it will be the reverse. Cole and Cassie think like they know more than Gail does, right? Right. Um, and then finally, everyone will be on the same page in 1966 in season four. Um, but Cassie is the one that kind of breaks with the guilt and tells him, in 1961, that's when you die. You get shot in East Berlin trying to cross the wall. You die because of us and you help us. And we kind of outline sort of like Cole saying, don't help us and – Cole saying to him, you're going to help me anyway. And Gail says, I don't know. We'll find out in 1961. Yeah. And then um, child, the child version of the pallid man gives, gives Gail one of Ethan's drawings, which is a drawing of him in kind of his, like, you know, FBI G-man suit being shot in East Berlin. And then he is left behind with everybody dying in that tent because Cassie and Cole are splintered away. Mm -hmm. And so that's all of the knowledge he sat with for eight years. Um, So it's kind of like this great, like, he's saying sometimes, like, you know, he will say in this conversation, you know, I'm afraid loyalty is going to bite you in the ass one of these days. Sometimes you got to go it alone. And it seems like Agent Gale goes it alone in this episode, but really he was helped to survive this whole scenario by Cassie, Cole, and Ethan, like their kid, with the drawing. So he kind of like gets a picture of exactly what happened because of Ethan. So you have, I'm broke, I don't speak German, because just like Die Glocke, Cole doesn't know any foreign languages. Um, and Agent Gale is off to save, um, to help Cole and get him into East Berlin. Did they just get like shady passports from some dude and fly? 60s man were wild. When I saw that like passenger <laughs> log and it was just like on paper, I was like, how did you guys get that that fast? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Fine, fine, well, fine. it was a lot easier to forge passports in the oh, 1960s, yeah. right? I mean, you just, you need like a hot knife and some, <laughs> right? Remember, like, what was it? Who, where did I see like a 1970s driver's license and didn't even have a picture on it? I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> like it's just a little card. Super, <laughs> super easy. But the technology wasn't there to make them that way. So it wasn't really there to like, they couldn't be made better than that by anybody's technology. I just, yeah. I feel, I always wonder though, this is a complete aside, like how easy it would be to disappear if you wanted to, you know, before computers. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Probably not too hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the one, the other one before we head into um, Berlin, 1961 Berlin, the one quote from Agent Gale in Nature that he's talking about when he's talking about sort of the conspiracy of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys and why people are buying into this like fanatical religion out of grief, mm-hmm. Gale says, People just to want to believe they have control over their own fate. I'd hope I'd have something to say about it. So good. He's such a hero. um, And he, right? Like he's going into, he's making the choice to go into this scenario where he knows that like there's a high risk he could die. 
but he's choosing to wear that bulletproof vest, mm-hmm. right? And so it's kind it's just this great like it's is a that hope, con- right? Yeah, like right control over your own fate, but then you're kind of like but it, but it, but is it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, there's just a lot um it's kind of great because you've all this kind of writing of things he's saying um, and you don't fully appreciate the weight of it yeah. until you go back and rewatch not only this episode, but know that he survived it <laughs> when you get to the end of season four, right? So anyway, okay. So really quickly, I don't want to spend like a ton of time, but I just wanted to be like give a shout out to like the really like – unbelievable research that went into this episode. So like the 1975 um, Fierce City summer in New Mm -hmm. York City, um, this is a very specific day in Berlin's history. Mm -hmm. And they make it very clear. Cassie says the date is August 13th, 1961. That is the day that the Berlin Wall began construction. So they, right? So you have, I kind of went down a little bit, people laugh at me, research rabbit hole. And leading up to this, you had like waves of immigration, right? And not only from East Berlin, but also just people from Eastern Europe using this as a way to get to the West through East Berlin. You also had a lot of spies moving back and forth into the West, right? Because it was an opportunity to do that. The construction on the Berlin Wall, um, just according to some internet research, began on at midnight Um on Saturday, August 12th, you had leaders of East Germany meeting, and then construction of the wall began at midnight. And so on the day that Ramsey, Cassie, and Cole are all there mm-hmm. is the morning that Berliners woke up and a wall was being built right through their city. Oh, my God. Um, and there is um, an article that describes this t- – this time period in Berlin, there's a book called Berlin 1961, Kennedy Khrushchev and the Most Dangerous Place on Earth. So it's like this, right? Like you've got this espionage back and forth. You've got the height of Cold War tensions, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and so it's kind of, right? Like they're just using kind of like the whole like fierce city and serial killer and heightened crime, they're like leveraging an actual historical event where they're already with very dangerous tensions and dropping their characters in the middle of it mm-hmm. when their stakes are like to save the universe, right? It's just like you can't like they're using real historical like tension and they're dropping their characters like in the middle of it. Um, there's also just some fun, like in terms of staging it, like at the opera house, we'll at the very end of the pod, just sort of like a fun Easter egg, we'll get into the actual opera that, that they, that Kirshner's attending. But the two opera houses were located in East Berlin. And there's an article in The Guardian in the UK that's kind of like this firsthand, um, account of someone at this time that a third of the audience at the opera house would be West Berliners kind of like going back and forth. And there actually was a, an incident that happened in October of 1961, where there was like, they called it the Wild West showdown at the OK Corral that was about a American official on his way to the opera. And there was a face-off for 16 hours at Checkpoint Charlie Mm -hmm. because of somebody attending the opera. So I kind of wondered if these were all just sort of like fun historical details that they like played around with. Um, The other real world um, 
history that they're kind of weaving into this is uh, Mossad. And they were, like, if you've seen Spielberg's Munich, right? Like, they were... Israeli intelligence was like famously hunting down war criminals. There's also a really interesting article in Newsweek called The Secret History of Israel's War Against Hitler's Scientists, and that it wasn't just retribution for the Holocaust, but it also was like an active national security fight because Nazi scientists were working um, with other countries that Israel thought was like contrary to like their national security. So Mm -hmm. hunting down Nazi scientists, it wasn't just about the past. It was also about sort of the present national security threat. So I think it's kind of interesting how Cassie and Ramsey are like on team revenge and are about retribution. And you've got with that scene with the Mossad agent when he's talking to Kirshner and he's like, there's things that happen inside a courtroom and then things outside of it. It's Mm -hmm. kind of weaving in. You've got these two teams that are on missions that in part are about retribution, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Which, yeah, that's that's a really good kind of grace note or like thematic historical. It's a good choice that they chose, even though they kind of had to with the timeline they were working with, with Gail, you know, and the 12 Monkeys and Kirshner. But like it... That what the what they chose to draw out really complements the entire episode. Yeah, it's really fun because you've always got Cassie, Ramsey, and Cole when they go in the past. They are always on these almost kind of like covert missions, right? right. Where they're like spies from the future trying to pretend to be something <laughs> they're not, right? And now they're actually getting dropped in the middle of a real spy scenario mm-hmm. <laughs> that, like, act, you know, in ways that like actually happen. Um, so, like, as we said, we'll get back at the end of the podcast to the the Wagner opera that's playing. But we go to Cassie and Ramsey in, that, in 1961, walking through the opera house. And I just think they both look so good. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Um, it made me return to that question that you asked on the first time, like, what's your favorite period? And I forgot how much Cassie rocks the, like the 1940s, 50s, and 60s silhouette too. Like, mm-hmm. oh my god, are the I think this dress and then the one in Die Glocke are kind of actually echoey of each other. Mm-hmm. You know, white and flowy and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, they're both they both look. She just looks so good. <laughs> she, I think she looks like kind of like Grace Kelly. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just want to stare at the collar of that coat. And her little, like, that round bun, 1960s bun thing that they did. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what to call that. <laughs> yeah, I really know. It's not a beehive, but it's some sort of, like... There was teasing involved. Uh, yeah, yeah, like, you know, that, that <laughs> underneath the smooth coiffer, there's, like, just a ton of teased, teased hair. <laughs> right. You have I- to ask Aaron Marker. He's... <laughs> he did it. I covet her coat, and when Ramsey throws it, I'm like, no, that is a beautiful <laughs> fucking coat. Don't throw it. Um, dare I, you, sir. I also think, like, it's kind of, you know, if for a while now, they've given Kirk Acevedo the kind of, like, like the worst of the era looks, oh, right? Yeah. Like, uh-huh. whether it was in 1944 or he was in the 70s, right? <laughs> he had a shirt, and they finally let him rock a, like... Cary Grant, like, you know, the pocket square and the thin bow tie tucks. Um, he just looks so dapper. So mm-hmm. it's just like delight in seeing them cleaned up um, and kind of looking at it. Um, and I think, you know, before they get into sort of the whole like espionage hijinks, there's a really, there, I think there's a, it's, it's, it's a small moment, but you have sort of like just how far these two have come mm-hmm. that she's in a daze and Ramsey knows why, 
right? Mm-hmm. And it's, you want to wake up, we did what we did. And yeah. it's because she's super fucked up about Cole, but he knows it because he is too, right? And yeah. it's not only a moment of kind of, Look how far these two have come with each other that they even know what the other one is feeling and why. But I think it's like we were talking at the top of the pod. It's an important check in that it's not like this was some sort of like cold hearted betrayal that they're not feeling the ramifications of. Right. Like they feel like shit that they Mm -hmm. had to do this. And Cassie's in the middle of this mission and having to like shake it off. Um, Yeah. And and Cole's very like cool motive still murder. Right. Um, um, but one thing I did think, though, too, about Cassie and Ramsey is there's a little moment that kind of uh, Cole clocks in the beginning situation room debate is when um, Ramsey puts his hand on Cassie's shoulder, you know, and Cole gives it this like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what did I fucking miss? <laughs> Right? Those situation rooms for Cole are always like, fuck. Little landmines of like, god damn it. (laughs) First it was Deacon, now I gotta worry about Ramsey? Like, what? (laughs) Um, I love love when um, Cassie kind of calls an audible and and decides to go up to uh, try and stall the the Mossad agents and Uh Ramsey mutters, no wonder they get along, right? Like, so, yeah, there's some great little nuggets in there. Um, Obviously, it does not go according to plan. They end up uh, for the second episode in a row being tied to chairs and being tortured. Um, This is where we learn that sort of like our first clue when Mossad says they're calling the CIA, it's kind of our first clue of like, uh uh-oh, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe that's how the report was started in the first first part. Um, And, you know, we talked a little about this on our last podcast, kind of previewing this, but the – the, the sort of reaction that they have to one another being tortured mm-hmm. and particularly Ramsey's reaction to Cassie being hit by the Mossad agent. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to make you like pay for that. It, mm-hmm. it also is another kind of check in to let you know that, you know, these two characters may never be BFFs, but something has shifted that they at right. least like care about each other enough that they don't want to see each other like get hurt. Right. And they're a team of two at this point. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so you have um, – I love it because this is also kind of a reversal of the, the second 1944 episode Emergence where Cassie and Cole were being questioned by Gail and then Ramsey came to their rescue. And now you've got Ramsey and Cassie being tied to a chair and now <laughs> Gail is the one that's like coming to the rescue. Um, and, you know, like – even though he's been betrayed, Cole is still loyal, right? Like, he still goes in to save them, right? Like, it doesn't matter what they've done. He's still going to, like, risk it to go in and save them. But I love the, like, when he goes in to, like, untie them and they punch out the Mossad agents and Cassie starts the, like, Cole and he's just like, save it. Because we all know that, like, the way she, the line reading for that is just so classically Cassie, you know? And this emo, like, Cole. And he's like, 
Shut, shut, no. <laughs> right. Like, we're not, we don't have time for this, and we're not going to get into it, but I'm fucking mad. <laughs> and we're going to get into it later, so just save it, right? You're just like, if you're a Cassie, you're just like, oh, fuck. It's, right. it's, it's when you're at the party, and something happens between, like, you and a friend, or you and your partner, and you just know that car ride home's going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, totally. <laughs> Let's stay as long as we can. You're like, I'm gonna actually, I think I'm gonna pass out upstairs. <laughs> right. Um, and so you have Cassie run immediately into the room with Kirshner. Cole explains to Ramsey, like, you know what, idiots, you guys are the ones that planted your own clue, which happens in kind of all of these Agent Gale episodes, right? Like, or a lot of them, right? You have after where they planted their own clue on the wall with climb the steps ring the bell you have the episode in 1944 where the photograph and the writing right like they kind of it, it's all kind of like these closed loops um but i think cassie in this scene it's really interesting like she is so desperate for this to pan out mm-hmm. right like and Cole is kind of like shocked at it, like like get a hold of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. But it's what is so interesting is like they planted the clue, but but it still pans out, yeah, <laughs> right? Like I mean, so that it's sort of like is it sort of like there's certain things that are a loop, but there's still other things that are left to chance because it's still like. As soon as she sees that necklace around Kirshner's neck, it's like both things are true. They did create the, the their own clue to get them there, but now they're going to learn some really important information, yeah. you know? It's, so It's pretty interesting, like, like, if you think that, like, was it chance or was it that that piece of evidence was preserved, preserved or whatever because she found the, like, necklace? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, I don't know, it's, it's something that you kind of puzzle over. Or I, I have, I don't really have mm-hmm. a clear answer to is it's like, you know, did, yes, they were the ones who mentioned Titan, but also, like, they weren't wrong to go looking for him either. Like, it's almost like one of those times when you have a multiple choice test and you, like, scratch out a few and you're like, well, and, you know, it feels almost good if you don't actually know the answer, but, like, everyone you know is wrong, you, like, up your percentage chance of guessing the right one. <laughs> right yeah i mean because it's kind of i don't know if i'm like quite wrapping my head around this but like there's a lot of things that this episode plays with both in terms of the redacted report Mm -hmm. and what gail knows that like some things are not fate right but there's this element of there's a huge element of chance that this works out yeah but the other thing too though is well, here's a thought I just had, is if it was futile, don't you think Gail would have stopped Cole from going? Like, he knew it was worth it to go. Well, no, he doesn't know. what. He, well, he knows he, he dies in Berlin. Right, and Cole says, oh, I, I don't know if it true. makes a difference. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. But, I mean, Why to a certain extent. that he already... Oh, cause it's, because oh, it's, I'm confused. It, Damn it. I know, because it's really confusing what Gail knows when. Yeah, right. but right. So he doesn't he doesn't know anything about 1961 other than he helps them. Right. And that they think he dies. Okay. Um, and he doesn't know whether or not it's important. He just knows even more about the stakes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> 
Ah, uh, right. Like it, it's it's it, it's interesting because it's like they go on these loops, just like in 1944, they went on this loop from a photograph that's a clue that they planted, but they also found out, and for their first batch of information about the messengers from Mantis, right? Mm -hmm. And now they go on this loop and they're going to find out the rest of the story about the messengers, right? So like it, it's funny that it's like there's this thing that they created, but that still moves the the goal, like the, they still move the goal line a little bit in terms yeah. of like the information they learn, even if they're really chasing their own tail. <laughs> but yeah, Um so we get into, you know, they spot what we will later learn is Olivia's army of the 12 necklace that she inherits from father. Um, and he, Kirshner claims that his true motivation for all of this work was the Red Forest. So everything he did in the Holocaust, he thinks, is about preparing people's, am I thinking about this? Of Did I, like, preparing people's bodies to survive the plague? Say that again. So he says there's a great plague coming, mm -hmm. and Cassie says immunity is inherited, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you can't create it. And right. Kirshner's like, well, my research, you can, right? Yeah, Which is right. in part why Olivia is able to carry the plague in her body mm -hmm. and not be affected by it. Right. Because Kirshner designed her to be immune. Right. Um, and the messengers are immune. But he thinks that he's doing sort of like these terrible things in the – like, it's – it's kind of like the ends justify the means. Right. Because this man who's who's the the henchman who at the very end gets killed by the daughters and old Jennifer. Um when when old Jennifer when Chicken Jennifer comes back in the finale, <laughs> that's the henchman that went to go see him that we mm -hmm. see in forty five RPM. So when he's saying, uh, a man who witnessed the future came to me, that's the person who went to him. Mm -hmm. Um and in 45 RPM, when they show that clip of the henchman going back to talk to young Kirshner at his microphone, my, uh, microscope, yeah. they say to ensure her creation and the creation of others, right? So like season four, Olivia was the one who sent the henchman right. to Kirshner to do all Ugh, of this. So good. So good. Because she is her own dad. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> Full circle. But like, we're not, we're going to wonder, we're going to think that the man who came to him is the witness and Ethan for a long time, right? Particularly because he has the word of the witness on oh. his bulletin board. And we're yeah. not going to know the real answer to that until season four. It's so weird to like, think about how you view the first time you view it versus how you view a rewatch when you're at this point. I mean, at this point, you, you're not even really sure who the witness is, right? Like, yeah, right. And then it's in season three when you think it's Ethan, and that's just so oh shit. And then in season four, it's Olivia, and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we're about to get into the next scene when you know Ramsey and Cassie are hunting the witness, and the right. witness is right fucking there, <laughs> right? So if you don't yeah, and realize, it's interesting that. that uh, it's called the word of the witness because Ethan thought that's who he was going to oh become. Oh my god! Mm -hmm. So, so good. it's not even like I mean, technically he witnessed, yes, but it's not the witness in the context, right? Of, which we're right? discussing. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not a document of the witness; it's a document of primary, mm -hmm. right? Who do witness? Who right. do witness? Right, right. But it, not the witness, right? Although the witness uses it, right? right. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. There's so many, so many layers to it. <laughs> Um, we get, so then we get the explanation. They put together that 
Um, and we get the little flashback of Mantis in 1944 that he created the messengers. They're also giving us clues to how Olivia is going to get up out of that wheelchair mm-hmm. at the end of the episode. Um, and then you have we we learn that not only does Agent Gale read H.G. Wells, he also reads Mary Shelley, like the mother of science fiction. Um, I love it. Nerd. Like I. I know. I love to think, I like to picture that, like, in the reset timeline, Agent Gale is reading Mary Shelley to his granddaughter. Aww. Right? Like, aw. So um, we get all of that, and then the music is kind of crescendoing, and then the music stops when he says, basically, like, James Cole. <laughs> and you're like, oh, no, this is somebody else who knows who Cole is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Mantis said the same thing earlier in the season. And all of this, again, like, even if you rewatch this at the end of season two, you thought it was all because he's the father of the witness, right? right? So, anyway, so you've got all of that. Um, and then that takes us to the scene where they're crossing the wall. Did you guys have anything else before we jump to the actual, like, Agent Gale's big hero moment? No. No. It's just... Okay. It's, it's, it's a really well-done interrogation, like, torture kind of scene. Like, from the stunts to the editing to... I love how this the it's filmed in that kind of black-white sort of or desa- super desaturated look. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like the technique on the scene i mean this episode itself but the scene you know it just works it just works really really well because sometimes to me like interrogation scenes they're so rote almost and you're like oh yeah like someone's gonna get punched and they're gonna like say this and that i don't know it's just 12 monkeys is twisty in this in like a scene in it within scenes and twisty like within a more a bigger context and i don't know it's yeah. really satisfying to watch something be well done. Huh. Yeah, right. And I mean, there's another, like, just uh, talking about sort of the cinematography for a minute, um, these scenes and going into the wall scene, the way that, right, like, that's a great way to put it, like, the color is, would you say, de- desaturated? Yeah. And you contrast that to the way they filmed the 1975 episode. Mm-hmm. And it... It, it feels like you're watching something from the 1960s, yeah, yeah. you know, right? And like the way we perceive that time period is based on sort of the film images, right? right. That we that we see, right? Because I wasn't alive in either of those years, but like, <laughs> um, yeah. So it looks like a 1960s, right? Like it's not quite like no- north. It's north by northwest, like 50s, but like yeah, it kind yeah. of feels like that kind of like time era, like cat and mouse game like espionage and thing. the interesting thing like i'm i have the scene up running like silently um just to see what if i noticed anything and one thing is all the costuming is black and white in the 1961 and it's really desaturated almost to black and white mm. but when kirshner is remembering things he's remembering things in color oh right yeah that's a really interesting visual choice you know yeah it's like that really warm kind of very um, warm gauzy yeah yeah oh that's interesting yeah um oh the one thing i forgot to say about the mary shelley reference which i feel like professor aaron would like would like call in and be like how the fuck did you guys forget to mention this (laughs) um (laughs) i know sorry aaron is this is the episode we find out about Olivia being a creature made by yes. kind of like oh a mad God, how scientist. How can we not talk about this? <laughs> 
Right? And like the creature at the end feeling betrayed by her maker oh, and yeah. going out Duh. to find. Right? Like, I'm ah. so glad you caught that. We would have <laughs> oh, <been> disgraced. <laughs> no, I would have kicked myself and been like, beep, we afterwards, we have to record an addendum. Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> we so. did not miss this major thematic and like reference to uh, Western canon, we promise. <laughs> So yeah, you've got the whole right. We're not only seeing where he we're, made we're us seeing too well, <laughs> right, Doctor Franken. This one of the Doctor Frankenstein's in the story. We're seeing the true one, right? The one right. who made a person and people. Um, we're seeing his lab. We're seeing his lab. We're seeing how she was isolated from the world, and then we're seeing her at the end trying, like, cutting off that tie and trying to go out and find her place and purpose in the world mm-hmm. on her own. So it's like major parallels to Frankenstein. Yeah, so sure. Alright, so let's go to the wall scene. Um... Uh, like we talked about the staging and the lighting, but I feel like in particular, like given the budget that we understand that this show had, I just don't know how they make made things look so good. like so good, right? Like, and it's not like it has to be like huge in scale, but like I believe that they're like crossing kind of like the one last places that you could get across, right? Like, have mm-hmm. you guys ever seen the Berlin Wall in person? I, no, I no. I I went when I was in college, like backpacking, and so it's kind of crazy, like sort of like the whole like checkpoint Charlie and like this right like mm-hmm. cement wall being built. So like you have sort of like even the way like Agent Gale is like backlit, right? When he's shot, like it just is like really. I hate to say this scene where people are being shot up is, like, beautiful to look at. But it's, like, really an elegant – like, I think elegantly done. Yeah. So I love sort of, like, this kind of, like – you have that, like, Cole being, like, save it to Cassie. You also have the, like, Ramsey and Cole tension where both of them, as Gail says, are the big swinging dicks (laughs) who want to be the first ones out, right? And he's just like, oh, my God, save it. Um so you have them cross, you have Ramsey go and you have Cassie goes across with like y- useless Kirshner, right? Who you know is going to fuck things up trying to cross in this high pressure situation. But it makes sense, right? Like he would be like any of us trying to like go into this like scenario where people are pointing guns at you. Then you have the conversation that now when you listen to it, knowing that Gail knew what he did in 53 has so many layers to yeah. it. So he says, I have a granddaughter, two years, and every time I see her face, I see a little girl who's already dead. And then he says, but you, Cole, can do something about that. And he knows that this whole conspiracy is way bigger than the plague and that Cassie and Cole are kind of like onto it in 1953. And he he fully kind of like has that scope in mind Mm -hmm. When he then tells him, sometimes you just have to go it alone, and it's because he's acting on the intel they gave him mm-hmm. that he can't share with Cole, right? Yeah. Which is interesting because they weren't supposed to share it with him right. originally. Yeah. And now he's not telling them that they told him. And see, <laughs> here's the thing that I think that, you know, obviously other writers who could could write that kind of connective tissue – but I think that you have a better chance of like catching that kind of those kind of subtle subtextual connective tissues of stories when you do keep the same writers kind of on the same beat, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, that's just yeah. my little, that's my little like writerly uh, soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> we just 
we just really fucking appreciate right now this week. Right. It's <laughs> a point that connecting the dots, even the small ones, it matters because then it makes just such a dense story. Right. Yeah. And I mean, when you're telling and when you're telling like a lot of television is right now, really complicated stories that you want the audience to invest in. Right. right. And 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 pull the clues together and like obsess over like we do over so many shows. Right. Like then it's really frustrating when you get to sort of the end of the story and you're like, well, I remember that detail. <laughs> right. And it's right. Like, yeah. Did the yeah. writers not watch their yeah. show? <laughs> <laughs> But also, like, another technical thing is I – so I do have the episode running, and I'm just like – and I said this in the interrogation scene, but God, the, like the – the like you are saying earlier, too, how it looks so good for a shootout for such a limited budget. Like, every part of it works, right? The editing, the, like, the shootout, the flames, the, like, the paralleling of, like – Gale and Cole, like, firing their guns with the same stance. Like, it's just, uh, it's so well done. So I well know. Done. It's just really freaking good. Mm-hmm. Um, And then we have sort of, like, <laughs> we think in this episode that Gale dies like a hero. Mm-hmm. And we're, I was actually, like, surprised. I'm like, dude, this is, like, th- this was, like, a-, a guest star with his second episode. And I felt, like, gutted. When that happened, right? Then you watch season three and you're like, ah, at least we are like, ah, fuck, he knew it was coming, right? (laughs) Oh my God, right? And he went in it anyway. He's a Mm -hmm. fucking hero. And then they save. And actually, I think I remember hearing on the sci-fi podcast that that they actually filmed before the the Gale surviving Mm -hmm. bit. Maybe I, I think that that's right, but then they saved it for season four. I think that's right. Like, so then you have this triumphant, like, oh my god, he lived, right? But yeah. like the whole thing is now when you go back and watch it, you're like, ah, oh, they totally cut away, yeah, right? Like they never show us his dead body. Yeah. No and body, they, no death. <laughs> they never show like a headshot or anything. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, so it's kind of, you know, I think I choose, I don't, I don't think it's that he got a do over. I think it's that we, we had Cole's perception of what happened yeah. and we never knew what happened after. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is so classic, such a classic storytelling thing, that sleight of hand, you know, the whole watch the hands, not the cups kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right? To quote old Jennifer. Yep. Yeah. Um, so then you've got, like, they're heading into the lab. Ramsey's trying – now it's, like, Ramsey's turn to try – he's trying to, like, bridge this chasm with Cole, being like, we can still both get what we want. And Cole's like, "You t- like, okay, go tell that to Gail. Right? Mm-hmm. So, like, now Cole's seething anger at them is now not only the betrayal, but it is compounded by, like, a good man who is helping them died. Mm-hmm. Um, goes into Kirshner's lab. So this is like, as we were saying, like a crucial moment that we don't realize we're watching in our villain's origin story. Right. And the crazy thing about it is that everyone is looking for the witness and the child witness is right there in front of them. Mm-hmm. And Cole is like, it's about the kid. We need the kid. And Ramsey's like vengeance is the like the choice that costs them grabbing Olivia, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
So we, like, basically, like, Kirshner being, like, he tells us two really important things about sort of, like, learning about Olivia, about the way, why she is the way she is, right? He kept her in that room to teach her control and discipline. Those are two really good adjectives to describe Olivia. Like, control and discipline, right? Like, that is her to a T all the way, like, through the end, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The thing that's weird about that, though, is... Yes, she learned those things in there, but the kind of side effect of what he did not intend is she also learned fear and disconnectedness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Attachment right. theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and the thing, like, so we just, we see the, like, literal little girl in a box, and uh-huh. you see Cassie and Ramsey and Cole's reaction, right? Ramsey, like, as a father being like, why is she in there? And Cassie being like, you made her. Like, mm-hmm. Cassie's a doctor, right? Like, everyone's coming at it with, like, different personal reactions of, like, horror, right? right? Like, this is, like, a subversion of medicine for Cassie, for Ramsey. He's a parent. Like, it's just, there's a lot of, like, layers of, like, horror to it and then you have the scene where olivia little girl olivia is repeating father Mm -hmm. as cole and cassie and ramsey see the word of the witness which is created by their cassie and cole's son Mm -hmm. for they're seeing it for the first time they see all of their names on it and as as Olivia is saying, father, you see James Cole and you see 1959. And so, like, I think it's like a foreshadowing mm-hmm. clue as to, like, what the bigger end game to season two is about. And then you have Mantis coming in to grab her and you have kind of like their mother-daughter Ouroboros mm-hmm. <laughs> moment. And then you have sort of this, like, pivotal moment actually in our story where Ramsey doesn't listen to Cole. He chooses. It's another moment where Ramsey is choosing like you making a unilateral decision for revenge yeah. where he we finally get an explanation for that terror off the corner of the word of the witness because he sees Titan and rips it off. And that is that is the that is this pivotal turning point that sends Olivia on her path into the army of the 12 monkeys. And when you stop and think about like what would have happened if Cole had grabbed her, mm-hmm. right? Like it's crazy, <laughs> right? So like, yeah. Um, but also he can't because this has already happened. Right. It's the whole cycle. Yeah, I know. Right. Um, okay. So then we see sort of what happens next for Olivia. And we see her being brought to Monkey Mansion. And this is like a little girl who's only known her father's voice from a box And she's now being brought to this, like, now, like, iconic location. You're seeing the first time she's brought to it. And you have this scene between her and Mantis where she's saying, like, we're in his hands now, right? You have this whole crazy layer to it that it's her, (laughs) right? Like, she's actually, like, they're talking about a future version of her. And, of course, she, like, has no idea. But – but it's season. also lots of like you were saying at the top of the podcast. It's very God the Father, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're in His hands now. Like I mean, I've had that said to me in my church past. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yes. The whole like it's God. Component. Yeah, it's God the Father, but that's being told to her in the moment where she's lost her father and the right. only 
not only the only other par- parent, the only other human being she like ever knew existed. Oh, and she's being offered the witness as the substitute and being told, right? We see the first moment of you have a purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's all like Olivia's going to use that on Jennifer, right? Like this is the first time it was ever told to her. Right. And the way she describes that in season three is – I was freed from one box and fooled into another. They mm-hmm. called it a cycle, and all it was was just another box. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good. It's so good. And she's this little girl. Like, it's horrible. It's, like, heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And yet, yet she's – it's the future self that's pulling all the strings, and she's not changing. She's not going to change any of this that happened to her because it gets her to who she becomes. Right. I mean, I just had the thought though, it's another, it's another end at the beginning, beginning at the end moment, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Because she's beginning her witness journey at the end of her childhood journey. Or right. and like the start. And at the same time, that moment that she ends her life in the box is when she starts her life with the 12 monkeys. But it's almost like three cycles kind of like bloom and extinguish at once in this scene where she like is in the wheelchair and then she stands up. Right, because what you know, we, we see the moment when she gets up in the wheelchair, and it is like I I, I sit there and I can't believe it was like I felt triumph for her getting mm-hmm. out of that wheelchair, and you're like, man, am I? This is really fucked up that I feel this like triumph, right? But like, you also have the voiceover of her mother explaining about the witness leading us to the red forest, and that's the voiceover as Olivia is standing up and walking out of that wheelchair, right? And it is like the true moment where it's like this coming like this fork in the road where she's on the path to becoming the witness from this point forward right as we get that voiceover about the the witness leading us to the red forest just going to that like final moment of olivia in front of her mother's grave and i think it's interesting it's set the setting is in that garden that's the garden where we saw sort of our first or, or like, I guess it was our second paradox of the show mm-hmm. when they brought the two necklaces together when Ramsey was first brought to the Army of the Twelve Monkeys and it was like such a moment of their faith being like confirmed. Right. You know, it's everything father told us was true. And now we're back at that same place with Olivia and that is where she is leaving that necklace behind. Mm-hmm. And she says, my place in the grand cycle ends today. Mm-hmm. And Megan, as you said, it's like, well, yes – and no, and no, we should. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Right, right. Yeah, because it depends also, on right. whose cycle you're referring to as right. far as, like, who's pulling the strings. So, yes, her cycle as far as the fact that she's going to continue following this ends, but it's all part of the greater cycle, which is hers anyway. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's it, the end of her being a follower. Right. right. Yeah. It's also interesting that all of the greenery is so lush and green in this scene with her. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's rain, but it's like clear rain and the greenery around her is all green. Like there's no like red. There's in no this green scene. to red. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. That's because why Cassie stopped the countdown. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get one in beep every podcast. Always. Just gotta <laughs> slide it in there. Did you guys have anything else about our amazing villain origin story like going back and watching it it's just like it's so well done yeah it's it's really satisfying that you can take a part in episode that is like not even quite to the end game you know it's not like you know there's mid-season like lullaby but and then there's you know in game penultimate finale 
And yeah. this, it, you know, this is, it's just, but it's still so dense. There's still so much information being conveyed and so much thematic work being built, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, that was the thing, like rewatching a, um, and I think Beep was probably like, holy shit, is this another 18 page outline? Because it's like going back and watching it. It was like, I always loved the like espionage intrigue. And mm-hmm. then you go back and you're like, it's really important for the mythology, right? Mm-hmm. And like before we just thought it was Olivia's backstory, but no, it is like our villain's origin story, right? Yeah. We just didn't mm-hmm. know we were watching it. So they did really well with that too. As far as I know, a lot of shows, they try to shoehorn. Mm-hmm. That humanization of their villain in way too late. Way too late. And even though that's, like, we didn't fully understand what we were watching, like, they'd really do a good job of, like, fleshing out Olivia's motivations all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think It's why she's so... Not only is the performance just really fun to watch, but, like, it's why she's so compelling. It's because you have these moments of empathy. She was, like, this little girl mm-hmm. that was kept, like, it's fucking horrible. Right? Like, and she went from being in a box with a one way mirror, right? She can't see what's going on, like outside, to then going to live in with this crazy cult. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, yeah. It's um, also interesting in the, in the, um, way in which from her point of view, I mean, just like many other characters that we've seen, but from her point of view, and if we can put ourselves into that, her decisions are largely rational. Mm hmm. Yeah. Especially so you're like, context. man, I yeah, exactly as I mean, like, oh, well, I don't know what else you should do. Yeah. So whoops. And it kind of makes you uncomfortable as well. Right. And you also you also understand like not only are they logical, but like also her emotions, right? If you were her, you'd hate James Cole, right? You're a little sure. kid. You're a little kid, and he left you behind to them. Yeah. Yep. Right? And it's just yeah. So, which seems okay in theory until your faith is cracking and you don't see any of that purpose. Right. And you feel like you've just been used and abused and discarded, kind of like he was at the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like she and Cole are the two big characters. I mean, you've got the Jones and Adler one, but yeah, you've got kind of this parallel of betrayal, right? And mm-hmm. it hurts so much because it's like someone that you put your trust in and so you let your guard down right and that's why it's like so much worse right like, i know they always have the issue of kind of the parallels between her and cassie you know and whether cassie is the actual witness but there are actually a lot of parallels between her and cole's journey yeah they're the two gens mm-hmm. yeah and then always attempting you know to live up to this idea of um kind of being a savior they're just saving different things you know she's supposed to uh, assist them in like ushering in the red forest and that's what she was taught by her crazy cult family mm-hmm. and he's supposed to stop everything and like so they're just on opposite sides of the coin but they do have that kind of parallel journey yeah and they're the two you know things that were made by time travel yeah um that's a really good point um if you guys don't have anything else about olivia are you ready to head to like finally the angst and the betrayal mm-hmm. Boiling over when we come back to 2044. I love this face-off scene. Do you? So much. I don't know if you're that enthusiastic about it. <laughs> no, just, there's a gutturalness I, there, Tina. I know. I love so it. So ambivalent. I don't know. <laughs> well, I just sit there and I'm like, I marvel at how you can have a kind of car crash 
there is no we. And in two episodes, they're at the house of cedar and pine and it works. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, I, right? Like it's crazy. It is a crazy journey over the next couple episodes and it works. Well, um, this is such a flip from 203. I mean, she is, you know, she's so betrayed at the beginning of this season, mm-hmm. whether or not she has, you know, full rights to be as mad as she is. And I mean, I think in a lot of ways she does. And she's kind of been like harboring that anger for most of the season. And now she has like more than used up her side of this argument <laughs> in what right. she did. So it's like, we can't even just say, you know, she doesn't just get to say, um, like, I know my bad. We're even now. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Oh, hell no. Like, you have used up your goodwill and then some, my dear. Right. I mean, so you have Cassie and Ramsey coming back. G- guys, it turns out they were actually like, in some ways, they didn't, they didn't know they were right, but they got really valuable information, right? They have coordinates of where Titan is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from their perspective, it's like, we did, just like everybody else, we did what we had to do. We actually got really valuable information for the team. Mm-hmm. When Cole splitters back, Jones is so fucking mad and screaming at Cassie and Ramsey, being like, we only have hours left, right? Mm-hmm. Cole has now the personal betrayal. He's got Gail's death because of them. And then they had this kid who's like has to do with the whole like messengers that are trying to destroy the universe. And Ramsey didn't listen to him again Mm -hmm. and they lost her. And so he comes out of that machine and he is so fucking mad. (laughs) And it's like, lock them up. And you totally get like, I get why, like, I get where everybody's coming from, but like, and I love that you can sort of see the cracks in it, right? Like, Cole is operating, like, from emotion right now. And Whitley is kind of like, wait, what? Right? And you can, mm-hmm. you, they're sowing all those seeds for, like, who's the tipping point for the coup, right, in the next episode. But you have Cole saying, like, your mission is over. You made the call. Both of you, you're done. And you totally understand where Cole's coming from, right? Like, how could he possibly trust them? Yeah. Now that they have hours left after what they just did, and now they've got more information to go on, right? So, like, how could he possibly trust them? On the other hand, Ramsey and Cassie have, like, given up everything, their lives, their son for this mission, right? And now he's unilaterally saying, like, you're done and I'm going to lock you up. So it's just kind of like all this, like, coming crashing together. But, you know, the camera ultimately, like, they take one betrayal, like, one relationship at a time. You've got Cassie and Cole and like her face is kind of like in this disbelief at his anger. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I lied to you, but we can still do this. And then you just have the, there is no we, not anymore. Brutal. And it's, it's so good. <laughs> and then you have sort of the wordless face off between Ramsey and Cole, where Ramsey's just staring at him and Cole kind of squares himself to face off. And that's sort of, like, what we're going into for the next big, like, the coup episode. Um, And it's just so – the angst is just delicious. I love it. Um, And then we end with Deacon on the rooftop. Um, uh, Three-quarters of the way through his first bottle of whiskey, and the storms are coming, and he's just kind of, like, taking it all in, and it's just, here it comes. Yeah, I I love a good storms coming moment. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, It's so good. It's kind of true, because in some ways, like, I feel like the next three episodes could have each in of themselves been, like, season finales. Yeah. 
Um, did you guys have anything else about sort of the big face-off moment? No, just that it's heartbreaking and it's just ratchets up the tension so high, like sky high. And yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, really quickly, um, for the end of the podcast, rabbit holes. Um, the opera that is playing at the opera house is Wagner's, oh my God, we have German listeners, Die Valkyrie. Is that how you guys would say it? I have Isn't no it idea. D? Like D? D Glocka. So D Valkyrie. Um, the Valkyrie. And it was part of a four operas written by um, Wagner that is the the English translation is The Ring of uh, can somebody else pronounce this? Nibblungen? <laughs> but you were doing it, much better than I would I yeah. would be like Nibblungen? Nibblungen? <laughs> I don't know and I don't mean to be disrespectful. Oh man, we need German listeners to help us out here. So it is this is what I love about this. So it is a cycle of operas. So it's four operas that tell a story that is um, Norse mythology. And it is a, um, the description of it, it, it is a cycle of operas that tell the story in reverse order, even though Wagner wrote the operas in order. So like, how great is that, that it is a story that's a circle mm-hmm. and you start at the end and end at the beginning, like for this show, right? Um, the piece that's playing um, in the opera is um, Wotan's Farewell and a combination of motifs. It actually, there was, even though it wasn't in Berlin, there was a landmark reconception of this opera in Germany in 1961 at the... I'm going to say Beirut Festival, but it's a Bavarian town in Germany. And it was landmark for Wagner operas, like would like have all of these like elaborate costumes. And instead Mm -hmm. this staging, I guess, famously stripped that all down and was very sparse costumes and stage setting. And you had um, like the story and are any of you guys Norse mythology buffs? I I have a bit of a background in it. um, Like when it set and it's, Unfortunately, a lot of it has been like scrubbed because of being in grad school. But, um, <laughs> but like, I think it's interesting that it's like Wot- Wotan or Wotan's, uh, so Odin, you know, um, who I just love the mythology around Odin in general. Mm-hmm. So, um, and man, I looked this up a while ago and then. <laughs> Because we, like, punted the podcast. I'm like, oh, crap. I know. So, okay. So, I had a little bit that I looked it up. But I, I'm sure there's people out there that know more yeah, about sure. Norse mythology. So, the story um, is Odin's Valkyrie daughter, Brunhilde. Mm-hmm. Um, and this particular opera is the origin story of Siegfried. Mm-hmm. And so, you've got sort of, like... In some way, I was, like, trying to think about parallels, right? And this is also an episode that's, like, an origin story for Olivia, right? And part of the story is there are twins that don't realize they're twins, and they fall in love, and they have a child, and then that union angers the gods. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I think that's kind of interesting, right? Because like uh, the story of like children that are not supposed to be in existence, yeah. right? Whether it's Olivia or Ethan or Cole or right? right, like, and that it's like angering the gods or angering sort of like the forces of nature, right? Like, 
Um, and I, this is the opera where Siegfried is told that she's pregnant, right? And like Valkyrie intercedes. And I think I'm getting this right. But like somebody, hopefully we'll get some listener feedback. Um, but there's some interesting parallels about like epically screwed lovers who have a child they're yeah. not supposed to. And then they're saved by a god. <laughs> think has a lot of application attention to detail to be honest (laughs) right right and so it's it's great because it reminds me of the 1944 easter egg with a connecticut yankee at king arthur's court where they found a piece of theater and opera that was actually happening about the time where they placed the episode and then has thematic parallels to the story they're telling and it's just like puts me in my nerd happy place (laughs) (laughs) so if anyone listening has like other sort of like more detailed knowledge about Norse mythology and how it would apply like please like write in um, or let us know on Twitter because it'd be fun to kind of unpack that more for sure do you guys have anything else I don't think so like I can't believe we're already at two and a half hours (laughs) (laughs) right yeah so much Um, to unpack so much right and maybe we got all the Agent Gale stuff wrong but I don't care it's cool to it's cool if he knew man really cool and i do think he did just the way he's like yeah of course i don't know you that well why would i think that (laughs) (laughs) right um all right well megan thank you so much for joining us you're gonna be back you're gonna be back for season three indeed i don't remember what my first one for season three is but i think i'm pretty sure i'm on the eighth and one right the oh yeah yeah oh thief Yeah, yeah i think that's Gonna come in hot with that one. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorites. So good. yeah, so we're almost in the home stretch, guys. We've got three episodes left. Um, Congratulations, guys! Oh my god. Um, so the next one is Resurrection. Um, Dark Amy will be back to. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> Tom funny. Noonan isn't in that episode, but oh. we do have Naked Deacon. We do have Naked uh, Deacon. That's in her wheelhouse. <laughs> Love you, yeah. Amy. Yeah, we got Naked Deacon, we've got the chicken and the egg, um, we've got oh, Deacon. the chicken and the egg is so good. Right, so we've got a lot, the storms, like we've got a coup, and Joan's dying, and like, it's just, there's a lot. This and is another, um, sorry. Megan, maybe we can get you to call in about some of the psychology of the chicken and egg scene. I know, well, I was just thinking, it's another, it's, it's almost echoing what happens to Olivia this episode, right? Because with Jennifer because her cycle ends at the same time the next Jennifer like the younger Jennifer leader cycle begins right and so right. just echo Jennifer and Olivia really echo each other in these two that's episodes. a really good point right like we had two episodes where they're reclaiming where they were put in a box yep. by fathers mm-hmm. right and then we have the way old Jennifer describes it as but you're you're just rounding the bend yeah. like you're just rounding the big turn yeah and that's true for Jennifer and oh, for Olivia. They have some epic lines in this, like, in-game. Just... Yep. So good. All right. If you guys don't have anything else... I'm good. All right. We'll see you soon.